Welcome to Prussian Socialism, bringing you culture, whether you like it or not. This week, we're going to talk about the idea of empire. So in German, die Reichsidee. Ever since the fall of Rome, Europeans have been obsessed with one idea, building another empire just like it. From Charlemagne to Napoleon, France, Germany, England, even the papacy have all emulated Rome. The moment the Western Empire fell, its example was cherished by half a dozen Germanic successor states from Italy to Spain to Africa. In the East, the empire continued at Constantinople into the 15th century and even spawned its own imitators in Moscow. Last episode, we talked about the Holy Roman Empire. We concluded that, while the Holy Roman Empire was not effectively an empire for much of its history, it was indeed a cohesive state based on German power from about the time of Otto I, uh, mid-900s, to Frederick II of Sicily, who died in 1250. It controlled what is now West and South Germany, Austria, Switzerland, North Italy, and the Rhone Valley area uh, known as Burgundy. The Holy Roman Empire was torn apart by conflicts between the emperor and the pope on the one hand, and the emperor and the princes on the other. In later centuries, the empire deteriorated into a loose and complex confederation that was torn into yet more pieces by the Reformation starting in uh, 1517 and the attendant wars of religion culminating in the horrendous 30 years war of 1618 to 48. From the wreckage of this confederacy rose up two great new military imperial states, Austria in the Southeast and Prussia in the Northeast. Later, this led to the unification of Germany. In this show, we're going to cover some of the same ground, but you don't need to listen to the last one to understand this one. The key point about the Holy Roman Empire is that it was perhaps the most notable example of this bigger notion, the idea of the empire, or das Reich. Rome was the first great European empire, and almost every state in Europe has, to some degree or another, presented itself as another Rome. Not all went so far as to claim that they were one and the same, or the only true successor to the Roman state, but instead others took up uh, the trappings of the Roman government, such as its symbols, titles, and structure of its government, and so on. So, William, to start off this discussion, we're not, we're trying to do a little bit of a different model here. Uh, I'm finding it's sort of difficult to talk about one book and just go through it directly. I think it's better if we talk about a general subject and then bring in some books loosely to talk about it. So that way we can have more of a discussion, less of a lecture. So I want to be able to talk about this, this format will give us the ability to talk about some of the stuff that we talked about a little bit last time, but didn't really incorporate very well. So I want to bring up uh, some of the stuff that happened after 1250, after Frederick of Sicily died. So we can talk about uh, the 30 years war and the Reformation a bit. And then we'll get into some more modern stuff like the European Union and Hitler's Reich and how these are sort of attempts to bring about this great thing that all white people have been trying to do since the fifth century, which has reestablished the Roman Empire, which is the Italian's gift to humanity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You're no. welcome. So first of all, what was so great about the Roman Empire? Ooh, man, where do we yeah, start? Yeah, I'll let you start on that. I, I have my own ideas. Why do you think the Roman Empire was so great? Well, as far as Western civilization is concerned, there's, there's a multitude of reasons, but I think the biggest one is just the cultural impact 
by you know just by itself Every, when everybody thinks of rome they think of the grandeur of the architecture right like the coliseums the chariot races gladiator matches and basically rome at its zenith when it has all these types of you know these these cultural staples that have been passed down from one uh one civilization to the next and emulated specifically right so we we love our columns right we love we love the the facades we love the sculptures and that's that's kind of one of the biggest things i think that has well, that we gets do. passed I mean, down some people would say that that's all tasteless and ghost true overdone <laughs> but we americans especially love the big architecture oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the big columns and the gladiator fights oh yeah but here, here's the deal it's not just americans though and that and we have this evidence because while we can skip ahead to bit to hitler uh the the architectural plans he had for new berlin right were heavily based on old rome specifically like rome at its at its peak right with the the grand colonnades and they were they were uh the new plans that he had for the the new reich's chancellor or, or the new um the new Reichstag, effectively, right? Yeah, the big, the giant dome right. building in the middle it's of the whole thing. It's just over the top. It's And that's the point, right? It's like, it, what do we think of Rome if it's not grandeur, right, at, at its finest? It is it is the, the pinnacle of, of European achievement. And and to be fair, another thing that a lot of people don't think about uh, Rome, because they, they don't associate this with it because it doesn't really exist anymore, is the pyramid. So Rome actually had its own pyramid at one point in time that was unfortunately dismantled by a pope uh, to build a highway to the Vatican, which is sad. Um, but the, the point is, is that Rome reached the pinnacle of civilization so as we as we kind of we kind of can tie this into other civilizations as well slightly about why rome is so great uh that every civilization that reaches its pin its pinnacle and its zenith will build some form of pyramid style building uh so well this is a niche theory okay go yeah, on okay so this this there's a there's another thing kind of in anthropology there's like this concept of uh pyramid races so races that have achieved pyramids effectively or like the zenith of pyramid and so we all know of the egyptians that's like the biggest one right and then there's kind of the ziggurats of, of sumeria and then there's like the step pyramids of the aztecs and things like that and even to some extent people would uh, rope anchor wat into this um just not not necessarily because of its specific architecture but because of of the the towering spire style architecture it's more refined than that but it, it still is a religious structure like the pyramids were because the pyramids weren't just a oh we're gonna build this for for the because we can right there was a there was a, like a legitimate religious and and cultural purpose for this and the same thing happened in rome right rome at, at, at one point in time and that's kind of another thing that we can kind of we can kind of say that rome was larping as earlier civilizations as well that rome wasn't necessarily a, a vacuum pinnacle of itself right it wasn't a monolith um it mimicked earlier civilizations that had achieved these these great uh these these great architectural achievements so the the pyramid element to it is that once a civilization reaches its absolute zenith like its absolute cultural racial ideological philosophical zenith it will build a pyramid well i'm gonna uh, argue against you because the pyramid is a pretty obvious thing to do in architecture you just stack right. two blocks stack four blocks on the bottom put one on top you got a pyramid well that's the set it's the first it's the first thing any any two-year-old does when they have blocks if they've got any intelligence that is fair and i will give you that though there is a difference between the primitive step pyramids and ziggurats that we see throughout some of these other cultures and the refinement of the sleek pyramid right the perfect the perfect pyramid and that's kind of where the egyptians got it and that's why the romans copied the egyptians the romans never built a step pyramid and that's what separates them from these other pyramid groups so the ziggurats were obviously step pyramids they have like again it's it's your your child's building block oh there's like you know there's one stack 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 and the same thing with the aztecs or you know uh, parts of the mayan culture but 
the Egyptians were able to make it sleek. They had it perfect. It was perfectly geometrical. And the, 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 real, the real architectural feat, though, is not the outside. It's the inside. The inside of the pyramid. And this is the thing about Rome as well, right? So this is why the Romans copied the Egyptians rather than, they cop- rather than copying the Sumerians or these other civilizations that they may or may not have had contact with. So the interior of the pyramid is so perfect in its architecture like the the ability to because again it's, it's hollow it's not just stacking rocks on the outside and then having it just go to the top it's about carving the interior to the point where it can it can uh divert pressure and everything else in a way that it doesn't collapse in on itself while having you know hollow interiors so rome had one of these as well they figured it out they they reached such an architectural uh pinnacle that they were able to figure out how to build something like this and make it last and it was huge it was an absolute it was a giant pyramid it wasn't like the um like the Abyssinian pyramids, like the Nubians, right? So the Nubians had pyramids as well that they copied uh, from the Egyptians, and they were more, they were right, more. Well, spiraling. tell me how big was this pyramid? Bigger than the Great oh. Pyramid of Giza? Uh, it was, if, if I'm not mistaken, it was about the size of the Third Pyramid of Giza. So it wasn't, okay. it wasn't as big, right? I know it's not, it's not as as impressive as as the two major pyramids of of of, of uh, Khafre and, and Khufu, but this pyramid was still for it was the first one we built right as far as western civilization is concerned that we know of is the first pyramid that was built uh, in in western civilization uh well okay i'm just gonna say that the the other take on this is mm-hmm. that this is just a degenerate civilization just copying slavishly outside groups and that the real pinnacle of classical culture wasn't roman uh walmart architecture <laughs> but was the philosophical and artistic and literary achievements of the Greeks circa 400, 300 BC. Philosophy definitely plays into it. Um, And I'll give you some other achievements of the Romans, though, that I think are worth mentioning. So Justinian's Law Code, uh, which was just a uh, refinement and a systematization of Roman law that had piled up over centuries. And so Justinian cut out a lot of the stuff that was no longer necessary or that was contradictory and built it into a system that was used by the Holy Roman Empire at times and used by um, famously by uh, Napoleon Mm -hmm. and is still largely used, you know, through its Napoleonic form in France and Germany and other things the Romans did. The great thing about the Roman Empire, and I think the reason the, the main reason that people still emulate it and emulated it since its fall is because it was the one time when most of white civilization was basically united under one state. Right. And it was also a sort of material and uh, it was a material height. There was a a definite material uh, decline after the fall of Rome. There were, the cities were not nearly as big. You couldn't, there was simply not the political organization to maintain a city of a million people like Rome was right. in 300 AD. Or the, like the trade routes and everything else we maintained and all that other stuff. So yeah, the people, influx of white goods. people could get the things that they wanted, their spices from India. Yeah. <laughs> and they lost all that in the early Middle Ages because of the political breakdown. So, Which every, is what most people colloquially call the Dark Ages. Yes. And I think mostly correctly, they would call it the Dark Ages. Uh in comparison I, to that. In comparison yeah. to what Rome was. Right. So we talked last time about some of the, about the Holy Roman Empire and what that, you know, that was an attempt to rebuild Rome in the West or to at least model uh, the Carolingian Frankish state uh, on Rome. And 
we've seen attempts to kind of do that even in more modern times. So uh, Hitler and the EU. Right. (laughs) And so let's I think both of those might be controversial claims to some people. So let's start off with let's start off with the easy one. How is how is the Third Reich an emulation of Rome? in more ways than 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 we think actually and it, it even to an esoteric degree um so most of our, our listeners would probably at least have some familiarity with the Ananerbe, uh which is the um <laughs> the esoteric uh ss group that was you know basically uh comprised of a bunch of anthropologists psychologists and all these other types of uh you know and and just esotericists in general uh philosophers and stuff to go around and one the main priority was to find the origins of of the the aryan racial groupings uh but the secondary one was to find <laughs> the pieces of the empire right like finding the spear of destiny and things like that the napoleon oh, the, the had spear also that pierced christ's side exactly and, and that so, was used in the holy roman empire as like a symbol of uh of power that was it was a, it was a symbol of of, of of empire that was the symbol of empire right, right. Like this this thing meant that you had the divine right effectively like you held on to effectively the last thing that touched christ it has the blood yeah. on christ and everything else like that so you were by divine mandate you held this weapon well let's let's be clear i don't think the spear of destiny that is i think now in the reich's uh Schatzkammer in oh yeah in vienna i think i've actually seen it it's this sort of weird looking spear it's not the real one that pierced christ right it's each uh, the one that has like the gold sleeve even, around it it doesn't yeah. even look like an actual roman spear right so it's uh, yeah, probably not real, but we'll we'll go with it and call it. Say it's the spear of destiny, right? And they they say that it's, it's gone over revisions throughout the years, and been repaired, this that or the other. Because apparently Napoleon was after this as well, right? So this is this again. We can continue with this continuation of, of one empire to the next. This was also in the in the mind of Napoleon because Napoleon again he wanted he wanted empire that was his whole point he wanted to be the next caesar uh and the only way to do this is to get relics so relics have always been a major thing throughout uh history this plays into the papacy big time uh, as far as relics are concerned and we'll and keep going with, with hitler though. oh sorry yes yes uh so not yeah not that i died diverse but so you he went off uh finding the spear of destiny uh the holy grail the uh ark of the covenant there's a bunch of these these things right like so in, that wasn't just the movies no no so indiana jones actually so this is the thing so indiana Indiana Jones is actually directed by a Jew, as we all know, uh, Steven Spielberg. They usually are. Right, exactly. So, but if you notice throughout this, that's all of, all of Indiana Jones's encounters are against the Ananerbe. All the major enemies in, in the films are against the Ananerbe, the the SS groups that are going to find these these same relics, right? That Indiana Jones is after too, as we all know. The uh, the what's that movie? The um, it's, it's like Bar- the Rock Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. So Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, again, not to get into some crazy modern thing, but that is that's the whole premise of that is that the Ananerbe is trying to find the the Ark of the Covenant and this is a real a real thing so the Jews know this and they they play it off as fiction in in white civilizations in order to kind of you know downplay these types of things uh, but there was actually government funds dedicated to finding uh, the Ark of the Covenant uh, the Holy Grail the Spear of Destiny and and a few other things like the I feel the, like this wasn't a lot of that wasn't Hitler though that was Himmler it was definitely on, Himmler Himmler yeah. going on the LARP crusade while Hitler tolerated it or didn't know about it because he was doing more important things it could be that now i don't disagree but at the same time i the reason why i think it was allowed to continue and why it was able to still divert government funds is because at the at the bottom of his heart <laughs> you'd think there were more important things <laughs> yeah like <laughs> but yeah well that's but the thing here's the deal 
you can you can actually see what is more important to Hitler though when it comes to this Ananurbe stuff, right? Like the the there actually was government funds diverted to the the finding of the of the Spear of Destiny, where he shunned the initial um, the initial Messerschmitt Me two six two project, which was the jet engine uh, aircraft. Mm-hmm. So that got shouldered, unfortunately, which would have won them the war earlier because they were the only ones that had a jet aircraft. But that got shouldered. To find the magic weapons <laughs> throughout the world because that was they wanted to to not only not only was it a recreation of, of these ancient empires it was it was a consolidation of european history into one hand it was effectively the thing right like this consolidation of all european mythos into one central group hitler early in his career famously had a a lot of fights with bavarian separatists oh yes and i'm bringing this up because it's you sort of see two contravailing trends in Western political history. All, I mean, really all political history. You either centralize or you decentralize. Uh, decentralization would be things like feudalism or federalism, where there is a state, but the loyalty of people within the whole system is directly to the man above them and below them, not to the system as a whole. Whereas if we look at a a centralized state, think of Imperial Rome or Nazi Germany or Imperial China or the Ottoman Empire or America today. It's a centralized institutional state, so which has huge advantages in terms of organization. You're able to pull officials out of their role and just throw in some other guy. And this is what the EU is. is, is, Well, don't uh, get ahead of ourselves. So you have that you can be you can be the great centralized state and that's there's an adva- there's a big advantage to that because you can beat other states it's a, it's a much more it's a much stronger form of organization you typically see more centralized states when a state is is on the border with uh, a vicious enemy uh for instance the spaniards in the uh time of the moors they started off fairly decentralized, barely hanging on to their uh, fastnesses in, in the northern part of the country, fighting the Moors. And over years of fighting and fighting, fighting, they were able to centralize into Castile and Portugal and and Aragon and start pushing back against the Moors. And then you also see this greater centralization tends to happen in later stages of a civilization. So you think of the Ottoman Empire or the Roman Empire. I think Alexander's or, a good example of this as well. Sure. Yeah. Where you've got a state that is based on, not on personal loyalties, but on loyalty to an institution. And this will be criticized from the other side to say, well, you get less freedom in a centralized state. You don't have, um, the Holy Roman Empire would be sort of the, uh, in most of its history, after uh, about 1250, the Holy Roman Empire would be a state where, generally speaking, there was a lot of liberties given to the individual princes and dukes who could do their own thing within the empire uh, and sort of loosely be uh, aligned with the emperor, but basically could just do their own thing and could get away with it. With centralization, you kind of don't, but that's, but and that's that's not necessarily a bad thing, though. But the freedoms are, the freedoms that you are allotted within a centralized system like that are more so geared towards maintaining that that centralization or maintaining that civilization, right? Um, we see that 
I, you know, uh, to, to bring in, because obviously there's a difference between national socialism and fascism, but we do see this a lot with fascism, right? Like the concept of, of even the symbology between it, right? Like the uh, many spaghetti, no break kind of thing, where you have like the, the fascist symbol. Uh, and, and Mussolini, I think, was a, is a good example of this too within within that same time period rather than okay, just so going to you're, Hitler. You're saying like, between fascism and national socialism, there's a difference in the level of centralization. Well, no, not necessarily. That, there's just a, there's there's definitely economic and political differences between those. Like not not necessarily the centralized concept of it, but uh, within just as using fascism as a separate example from national socialism. And because again, you, you look at different nations that up up took uh, fascism as compared to national socialism, right? So there were similar concepts. This is why national socialism and fascism kind of roped in together a lot. Is because they do have that um, that drive towards some form of central centralization or like right. this, this autocracy type of thing um but specifically uh with specifically with the fascist concept rome rome was not to, to put it lightly but it was extremely fascist in its in its in its composition right it was well in in empire yeah, and it's, right. it's not, not in the republican right. state but yeah in the not not during the republic but during the empire uh you have it's and that's effectively what mussolini was trying to rebuild as well hitler wasn't the only one at the time that was trying to do this um and so Mussolini specifically utilized the old Roman um, imagery so of the fascists, right? That was like the big thing. As if you notice in a lot of old paintings of Rome, you have you know, at least one guy, his whole job is to hold the symbol of Rome, yeah, which is the, the fascists. The lictor is the guy who carries the bundle of sticks representing the council's power. There you go. Yeah. Representing the, the right to execute people. Right. Because and, and he usually has an axe stuck in the bundle of sticks to show that he can kill people. And the bundle of sticks also represents the you're stronger together than individually. Right. So and you can also untie the sticks and take one stick out to beat somebody with. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's the was that part of, it? of oh, okay. the yeah. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Then so there's a, a good a good history lesson for all the all the, the readers and myself actually. But so the uh, so with with Mussolini doing this though, he he adopted all the same symbology. And again, he that's also there's also a. a uh, a lack of racial component usually in empire like that and grand empires uh as we saw again with towards the fall of rome you started incorporating more and more different racial groupings and everything else like that underneath the banner of empire and mussolini didn't harp on race at all during his campaigns specifically in order to drive this kind of unity amongst the the subjects of the empire or, uh, subjects of the, of the fascist government as compared to national socialism where it was based off of blood and soil and these concepts of yeah we're going to have a reich but it's going to be german right like it's a german reich and specifically yeah like, uh, the italians i know were starting to talk about and were doing some propaganda to bring in some of their colonial peoples into yeah. the empire it was it was sort of a a side thing a side project for mussolini but they were talking about uh, italianizing the libyans and ethiopia abyssinians yeah, yeah. which is <laughs> sort of funny right and i guess they were following the british imperial model right uh, which in a way. worked for them but at the time period i think he was obviously too late in that in those concepts you know for what, what they could possibly accomplish um but that therein lies another element of of this type of thing of empire and rome specifically rome right so rome was rome was at at the zenith of its empire while it it's i don't like to call it multicultural it's Subjects were certainly multicultural, multiracial, right? Multi yeah, I would put it this way. There's two ways to handle diversity. You either do it like Rome or the Ottoman Empire did, where you have subject groups who are more or less kept separate from each other within the government. So like the Turks used to do, 
they used to have like separate dealings with the Christians. They would they would delegate the patriarch of Constantinople as the guy in charge of all the Christians, and they would dictate the sort of terms to the Christians, and the, they would work with the Christians through this this one representative. And the Romans sort of did the same thing. The other way of doing it is like what America has now, where you just try to mix people together and get them to fight each other right which is a part of the eu as well at this point um but for there's different reasons when we say multiculturalism or diversity there's your great imperial states like uh, russia is another example right they understand that you've got you've got to keep these peoples separate if you want to have a multicultural state the way you do it is you break the peoples into their own little um separate things like the chechens they have their own little chechen reich that's direct that's subordinate to moscow moscow doesn't interfere with them it's sort of like a a mini it's like a federalism kind of yeah it's like tribalism to an extent like you're doing tribal like oh saudi arabia is actually a really good example of this currently uh the kingdom of saudi arabia so saudi arabia is divided up on its ground level by basically bedouin tribes or, or what used to be bedouin tribes so you have like tribal leaders in different areas and they go and they pay homage to at this point in time prince salman right um you know obviously he's the next in line for the throne or whatever but effectively they're going to pay homage to the king he deals with tribal politics on a constant basis where he goes and he meets with the individual tribe like tribe leaders like their their whatever their specific local government would be not necessarily local government but the local leadership of that region that is mandated by the the king himself right and he deals with them on a on a on a one-to-one kind of basis and says this is what your mandate is for this stuff and you're getting in line with with our overall policies um and he and he deals with them on a one-to-one basis as compared to just issuing edicts right throughout the whole of the empire whereas america or assyria would probably try to break up those tribes and move them around and mix them together to get to be able to uh make them sort of interchangeable pieces within uh, right. the, the, the empire and it because it also weakened the the, uh, the the philosophy also behind uh you know the the usa and the eu and all this other stuff is that the more that you break these people apart the less powerful they become as entities in themselves so that you kind of are the theory is that they they are able to exact more like the empire is able to exact more control over its population if the population is not able to organize amongst itself and is then dependent upon the system itself for organization yeah but we're sort of now getting going going along with this you're sort of starting to see the opposite tendency play out in america so whereas 100 years ago or even 50 years ago or hell 20 years ago america was a very integrated institutional state and you're starting to see, I think, a breakdown where certain groups are allowed to have tribalism. Uh, blacks, Jews, basically everybody except for whites are right. allowed to have tribalism. But then whites are supposed to still act like this is a institutional uh, centralized state. Unless you're unless you adopt a non-racial tribalism as a white such as lgbt or something along those lines or right? or yeah or evangelical conservatism right you can have these types of things the amish is probably another option there to look at but it, the thing is all these groups individually by themselves do not have power enough to actually do something you know towards the state even even the black the black community the only one that actually has as institutional powers is the jewish group okay but so is having a great empire a good idea, or should we try to m- make ourselves back into a federal state? That's a, that's a difficult question because it's like we all know that there is power in empire, right? And we all kind of uh, fantasize about it, or or there's the uh, I guess that's the fantasizing is probably the best word. Romanticize it, I think would probably be the better way to look at it. Um, 
and that yeah there because it's a double-edged sword yes it's good for many reasons but there's also if you don't do it right it becomes an absolute abomination and a nightmare um so you have two sides of the same coin where it's like yeah you have empire right and it's awesome and you have like the whole the whole basis of empire you have the abundance right abundance of 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 uh of, of goods you also have freedom of travel within the empire right the ability for you to move from any place to any other place and you're able to maintain jobs within the same institutions and it's it's there's a lot of freedom within it and empire. there's a lot of efficiency too you get greater specialization of of uh of trade or right. jobs you can you can have you can find some guy on in wisconsin or nebraska who has a special talent for coding in C++ or uh, speaking Swahili or whatever and you can pull him into the imperial structure and you've got that like very good specialization whereas if you don't have a big empire you're just working with a very small pool of people people are going to have to be good at a lot of different things and you're not going to get such great specialization and you're not going to be able to build such a big thing to yeah you have have a larger pool for division of labor you know amongst many other things there's also standardization processes that are really you know helpful within empire like again uh literary standardization or uh industrial you know standardization monetary measure monetary uh, is another big one yeah uh, weights and measures yeah language which is ironic though because the united states is one of the only (laughs) places that uses the imperial system right for for measuring and all that fun stuff the archaic non-metric system, right? And which that, we actually still use, sort of along with the metric system. I mean, I people measure things. People measure different distances, often in meters, yeah. uh, but heights of of humans and in feet still. Right. It's like, like, you're, like if, you t- if I told uh, you it's fifteen hundred <laughs> meters to the or fifteen hundred feet to the the next exit, you'd be like, oh, you mean five hundred meters? Yeah. Like especially if, <laughs> especially people who've been like in the military. Yeah. Will will we'll def- default to meter measurements it's weird well it's like all all of our ammunition is done in in, in metric right like right. most of our scientific advancements are done in metric uh, just because it's all standardized this is, that's the kind of the fun thing is that america larps as an empire but it's the only one that's not standardized with the rest of world government <laughs> at least in the weights and measures yeah, right but. yeah you know well, it's we, effectively but that that trickles down to other things because again if you try to separate yourself from the rest of again okay so if we're trying to do global empire right if that's like the major specific goal right now is one world government what the World Economic Forum is working on uh, and all these other guys, right? Like BlackRock and Larry Fink and, and Klaus Schwab and all these other dudes. If they're working on one world government and you have the largest piece of that puzzle as a dissenting actor, you're not going to ever be able to have that because your, your, your main piece of the puzzle is going to think of itself as being outside of that and it's not going to just integrate with the rest. Imagine if, if the United States would get on board with the measurement systems of the rest of the world. If, if we were that integrated with them. If we had, if we, imagine if, if we had uh, our stop sign or our, our speed signs in kilometers as compared to miles per hour. If, if even like the cars, like they have to make special cars for us when they send them over here and put it in miles per hour. You go right. over to Europe, you you rent a car and it's like everything's in. Kilometers. It would be much more efficient for the global system if America would just switch to damn meters. Right. It, it's you know for global trade. As again, we're talking about empire. What is what is a what is a great aspect of empire? A standardization of trade throughout the entirety of the world. And most people are on board with that. But you add these extra elements to it that do strain the ability for standardization in general. And it also the big the biggest issue, though, is that it isolates that population and makes them either think one that they're not wanted or two that they are more than like they're more than everybody else that they're better than everybody else which is kind of the the 
the issue with the United States in the view of most people around the world is that it's an arrogant nation. Um, and it, it, it kind of gets this, I know, <laughs> you know, um, and it, more but it, so than the French. Oh yeah. Surprisingly. Right. Well, this, uh, <laughs> but the French are on the metric system, right? So like while the, well, French, the French invented the metric system, Ooh, see now there we go. <laughs> There's one reason to dump it. Right. Ooh, I, in any other discussion, yes. <laughs> but if, if we're talking about if we're talking about consolidation of empire, though, it makes more sense that you know because as, as we're going, the concept of this of this discussion is the Reich's idea, right? The idea of empire specifically, um, and in, like specifically in a European context, right? Exactly, because we're from the West, and our perspective is the Western, and our blood and yeah, and we're not we're not trying to set up like a a grand uh, a shav all shahs, right? Who is, uh, has the right to torture people and build eunuch <laughs> harems or like you know and... infinite reign of, of of our comrade xi jinping or something right <laughs> like some or- oriental barbaristic despotism another another khan right and the khanate or something along those lines uh, but that's that's the thing like you look at you look at these empires that had all these things had standardization throughout them that's like the one major thing that you look at and again back to rome rome had standardization more so than anything else, it, as you said, it unified all of Western of the Western world through standardization by making everything Roman. Like made, you did they made Roman everybody way. in the West speak Latin. Everybody in the East spoke Greek. They set up mile markers everywhere. The Roman mile is still a known distance. It's it's a little bit less than an English mile, but it's a, almost the same amount. And they had mile markers all over their roads. They built the roads in the same way. It was very easy for the Romans to send out uh, a labor gang or a, a infantry unit to go build a road because they had they had the charts they had the plans yeah they'd done it a zillion times they didn't have to redo it every time and that's and that's the thing so but they also forced that standardization upon their subjects even you know the ones they brought in and that as we were talking earlier is that while you have multiculturalism sure that those other cultures were still subjugated to the major culture of the empire which is again that's where we get the saying when in rome yeah, do as Ro- the romans rome, do rome taught these these damn Gauls to build their roads straight, right? And to or to push, build roads in general, and to build. Well, I think they did. They did have road. We the ancient Gauls had a lot more going for them than we uh, Fair. than we give them credit for. And if, if you read in Caesar, he'll mention certain things that suggest Gallic uh, Gallic civilization was more than just you know total barbarism. They had writing and they were using it for. Oh well, right, they weren't admi- like illiterate. They were even using it for administrative purposes. I mean, there's a there's a point in Caesar. I forget who he was fighting but he beat one of the maybe it was the sequani one of the gallic tribes and then he his men like went through their paperwork and they had lists of like every fighter and like the probably you know the weight of the guy his, <laughs> his age where he was from how much he got paid so well there you go no they they were doing this but yeah rome taught them okay guys you got to stop we're going to take you to the next level here and you're going to build a, a, a city on a grid system. Right. And then, or roads that'll last for thousands of years as we see now. It's like, you know, yes, while... you're welcome. While the, yeah, like, while the... <laughs> Italy has been doing this, it, you know, Italy also uh, built most of Ethiopia's conflating Rome with Italy. Italy Italy built most of Ethiopia's hospitals and railroad systems. There you go. In five years. (laughs) (laughs) Womp, womp. But we see that throughout, you know, the the scramble for Africa throughout the 1800s. Most of the technology that is still being utilized by Africans. And we see this in, so the Chinese that are, are, again, while we talk about empire, because empire isn't isn't just Western, um, even though uh, 
you know, you know Rome is, is the biggest one for the Western side of it. But there are other ambitions of empire outside of the Western world. China has has been one of the largest empires and and, and longest lasting empires in the history of mankind, uh, and they are now expanding again. Like they're they're starting to do instead. But here's the deal: while uh, while the China, the Chinese are doing the same thing that Europe did in a in a horrible way, they're doing the instead of doing the Drangnokfesten, they are just kind of like expanding out towards colonies, right? Um, and so I think you're probably going to see a cyclical element to that as well. But they're moving towards Africa, and then in Africa, they are making note that all the technology that's there is old European 1800s gear. They're, the railroad systems and everything else are still there. The, the the excavation systems for mining and all kinds of other stuff is just extremely outdated. I mean, like they they haven't had any upgrades since. Easily the 1950s or 40s when the British were still there or the Dutch or whomever else was 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 colonizing the area. And it's making it very difficult for the Chinese to go in as they plan to just go in and take over uh, an already civilized or industrialized area because they're having to rebuild everything, rebuild schools, rebuild roads. They're doing the same thing the Romans did to the Gauls, but in Africa, right? They're going and building. And they did this to their own local areas in Vietnam, uh, in Cambodia, Laos, and all these other adjacent areas that are kind of skeptical of the Chinese. But at the same time, they are definitely willing to take, to take this technology technology from them yeah um, North Korea has also benefited from China Chinese uh, imperialistic expansion because um, as we know China wasn't always the size that it is now there we talk about Manchuria parts of uh, the Gobi Desert or whatever that was taken from the Mongolians uh, and taken from the Russians during the Second World War so there has been a, a steady advance of the Chinese Empire over the past hundred years that is seemingly gone unnoticed by in the, in the West um, until just recently where everybody had a knee-jerk reaction to, oh my God, these people are actually going to take over the planet if we don't do something about this. Yeah, but you know, Rome is special because yeah. it's Western and, I, well, I guess... <laughs> well, we, we should, have better architecture We should opinion. examine that question, but you know, the, the medieval theory for why Rome was so special uh, is actually none of the ones that we've mentioned. Mm-hmm. The medieval theory was that Rome was special because it had allowed the expansion of Christianity. Uh, Rome, the, the, Rome the, existed the, the by the will thing. of God. God wanted Rome to happen and to be an empire so that when Christianity arose, it could be spread around the world or so, around the around the Mediterranean. And that brings in another part to, to empire that is seemingly neglected is which I, spiritualism. Which, let me just say, I think that was a... I, I, that's sort of coming from Dante, and <laughs> Love that. and I, I'm sure he wasn't the only one saying it, but right. I feel like that is sort of a back justification. Oh yeah, like Rome was great, and they just since Christianity was totally the dominant religion and, and philosophy, they had to like come up with a reason for why they still liked Rome, even though Rome was anti-Christianity for 300 years. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> they persecuted that, them. They threw them into the lions and yeah, stuff. Lions and, and uh, yeah, the, the arenas. It was fun, you know. I suppose for them at the time. They're but like, God, yeah. God wanted Rome to be there to throw those Christians to the lions because it made Christianity strong. Hmm. Cope, but <laughs> the, but and that's but that's kind of the deal is is that they they had to un, they have to look at it from a spiritual perspective because any great empire, regardless if it's Roman or not, if it's it's a Christian monotheistic or whatever always tends to have some form of spiritual backing you have the, there's like a trifecta really you have militarism you have uh or militarism spiritualism and uh, i would imagine that there has to be an industrial component to that third bit of it because you can have military you can have spiritualism but if you don't really have an organized industrial component to something you're not gonna really become a great empire trade effectively is this that third like element sparta or prussia right not really having a big industrial base they have but much having, having militarism and spiritualism yeah but yeah. they didn't have but again what was the big deal with with prussia prussia definitely neglected its navy 
right, up until the 1800s when it became a unified country of Germany in 1871 before it became the German Empire, right? So Aren't you forgetting the great electors' attempts to colonize the Gold Coast or the Ivory Coast, whatever it was? Oh, well, yeah, but wasn't that... In the 1600s? Well, yeah, but they didn't really right that kind of really <laughs> go anywhere right but at the time you had it you had you had but that's again in the hre you had this 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 kind of movement out there but again that was that was from their, their roman past they had these grandest ideas but they didn't have the ability to really project at that point in time right like that's like they kind of did but they didn't have this like you were competing with these other empires that were already there england for for instance england had a phenomenal empire and it's based off of and i, I hate i hate to quote jews when i do this but um jocks Atali makes a really good point about this uh, uh, and it, that, that's a book we can mention, I suppose. Right, you know, LOL, who? Yeah, so, okay. Uh, Jacques Attali is effect- effectively the uh, the French George Soros. Okay. Uh, and he was the um, the assistant to the French presidency uh, throughout most of the 1980s. And he was head of, like, uh, one of the divisions of the European bank. Uh, so, he was, he was a big bankster, you know, Jewish guys. They tend to be, right? So, bank, Jews, banks, whatever it goes. Uh, but he wrote a book called A Brief History of the Future, amongst many other books. But this one specifically talks about the uh, the concept of, of cores, so market cores. Uh, uh, Rome was not an exception to this, uh, and he brings actually he actually talks about Rome quite a bit uh, in in his in his book, along with the other imperial nations uh, like Spain, uh, Venice, and uh, Holland, England, these other types of ones into the modern age, where it's necessity that the the confluence of these these types of things has to has to be centered around effectively a a, a port city, a port like a, an effective port that is able to get trade to the other, effectively okay, to so push me, influence. So if I get this right, right, his theory is that the important thing in history is that there are different market cores based on ports, and we might say that ancient. Uh, Phoenicia was the first or Sumeria was the first and Egypt was the first and Crete and then it moved to Phoenicia and then it moved to Greece and then it moved to Rome and then it moved to Venice and then it moved to Amsterdam and then to London something like that yeah right? there, there's, there's other ones in there but yeah effectively okay, so that. this this sounds to me Cordoba was one of the of the Moorish Empire was a thing so in Spain they it, used Cordoba as, as I, a, you know this it's an interesting thing to point out but I'm just gonna say this to me sounds like a weird economic version of Hegel, it, it, yes. It's just Hegel's <laughs> idea of history is that it it goes. The point of history is is the progress of freedom and greater and greater freedom. So right. first you had China where one was free, and then you had Greece where a few were free, and then you had had the West where all were free because we have democracy. Yay! Right. This is you don't need to read Hegel's philosophy of history. That's what it is. Yeah. There, <laughs> and, don't pick up Hegel. Just listen to that. <laughs> right. And it it's like okay, but I can think of. That doesn't really work because I can think of counterexamples. There and there are many. That's the kind of thing. So like, zillion, there's there's pieces doesn't... of the book to take out of it. Obviously, you take it's, the thing with reading any Jew is you take it piecemeal as it goes. Right? There's there's truths within within the nonsense. Um, but there there are there is some there is some merit to the concept of, of being able to project power and project influence through trade. And we see that again with Rome heavily. Right? Having complete control of the Mediterranean trade routes uh, after their their conquest of of Carthage and these other these other uh, empires to the east as well. Like, moving into the Levant yeah. and Egypt, right? So Egypt and Egypt was another one. So we're talking about even further back beyond Rome. Egypt had a... a oh, wait, but dom- keep, keep oh, going with the Jacques Satali. So what, oh, yeah. what's the point there? Well, so the, the point of that was that... Uh, that, that, was, that was back to the point. So that, that there's there's a, a, a major influence or a major uh, emphasis on, on trade as being a projector of imperial power uh, and that it is necessity. Not that it, not that it just is a thing, but it, that is a necessity type of thing. You have to have... And this, this is why I was contrasting it with... Uh, 
with Prussia, that Prussia didn't have a massive uh, presence outside of itself, right? It was just a, a centralized geographic location that didn't have ex, uh, exterior imperial uh projection uh, until 1871 when it became the German Empire and they started moving into the scramble for Africa as well but they did it late right so the scramble for Africa had been happening throughout most of the 1800s and really honestly uh, some of the 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 late 1700s but really the really it started with the defeat of the Barbary state uh, the Barbary states um, with the French and and American Uh, French occupation of Algeria and Morocco in like the 1830s or right with the assistance of of the US Marines Uh, they had some of the, the first US Marine expedition was to the Barbary state conflicts in 1810 or so. it was Jefferson's reign yeah it was around that, that time but it, the, the, the point the, the, the way they were able to sell that to the American public actually was in order to stop uh, the Barbary uh, the Barbary coast slave trade of Europeans uh, from Spain France and Italy and these other places because uh, they were raiding the coastlines taking white slaves and taking them back to Africa so that was one of the big selling points of we need to stop this crap now so because um, at this point in time slavery had been abolished in the West for the most part with the exception of the United States right um, and so the the big point of this though is that they got into it late so they they were a a lack an empire that was lacking in in really the resources to be an empire and project outward which is why colonialism was the colonialism was was just that it was utilizing ports and global influence so the first global quote unquote global empires well we can say rome was technically a global empire at its time because it encompassed basically most of the known world it technically wasn't global there were civilizations outside of rome on other continents that really don't get any credit back in the time uh so you can't really i wouldn't really consider it to be a yeah, global Rome, empire Rome controlled southern and western europe the mediterranean north africa right and had trade going on through the red sea with india and, and china yeah but the other great states during say 100 a.d would have been parthia in in persia and iran yeah. right and i think there was a hindu empire there was the chinese uh, as well and then there was a the, the Chinese Han Dynasty. Yeah. yeah, and for who who knows what else was was happening in North and South America at the time either. Um, so there's civilizations. I'm like sure they, some Mexican barbarism, <laughs> drug I mean, cartel, tier violence. Well, if, if, the, if I'm not mistaken, I'm sure that. Well, I mean that's what the Aztecs were, right? The Aztecs, the Mayans, the Olmecs, all these people were basically I think we just assumed like, that, that was going on. Right, so, they yeah. were all like coked out cartel guys chewing on coca leaves and stuff. Like so, it was it was hardcore. But they did have civilization, right? So we can't say that that Rome had a global empire. That time like uh the 1800s european empires so uh effectively the age of empire right where you had the french empire but it was they and, and we we like to think that empire was a total domination of your respective geographic location it it became different at that point empire was more about economic control over other regions now you have military control too obviously look at the british raj uh you know the south africa all these other places well, yeah, all these all these european empires in the 17 1800s were doing what rome didn't do yeah which was expanding not to contiguous regions and integrating those people but instead expanding to far-flung areas that weren't linked together and then exploiting them economically but not really bringing them into the empire because you you couldn't really i mean france did French, the French, tried. The French, for instance, <laughs> uh, like in Africa, tried to or talked about incorporating Algeria into France, and they did some colonization, and they were going to uh, Frenchify and make French citizens out of all the Berbers and Arabs in North Africa. Yeah, which they sort of tried, and I guess sort of worked a little bit, but 
had some comical results. Portugal failed in a similar way with Brazil, uh, making it part of the empire. It had its own crown and everything else like that, right? So they, they try to integrate these people into these into their into their respective empires. Uh, but this actually goes uh, back. This, uh, Portugal had the well, the French did too, but Portugal is the like extreme example of race mixing. <laughs> oh God, and yeah. uh, ex- expansion into the whole world and then maintaining your empire on like. A virulent Catholicism, or I would say, uh, not virulence, wrong word, militant Catholicism. Right, yeah. You, you are Catholic, I am Catholic, <laughs> we are part of Portugal, we speak Portuguese, we are the empire. So, and then that's the thing. So, and, and Atali actually talks about that as well is the, the necessity for that market core to be able to project militarily. And that's why the United States is such a successful empire currently, is that they're able to. Uh, they're they're able to pretty much browbeat and bully everybody into what they need to have happen, and that's and with the you see this now with with the downfall of the U.S. military, like oh yeah, we have all this tech, we have all this cool stuff or whatever. There is there is a a, a notable decline. There's in fundamental US human presence. reasons that you that you need to uh, you can't build an empire just by beating everybody into it. Right, exactly, and and so we see this we see this currently. Uh, the EU is is on the back foot currently, and you see them really now desperately trying to create a European army. Okay, uh, well let's let's introduce this. So oh, yeah. we said that the Third Reich is kind of I mean in Napoleon's empire were very much they were trying Napoleon and Hitler were in a way trying to recreate Rome. I mean right. they had their own agendas, of course, and their own ideologies. But Hitler and Napoleon both looked at Rome and said. That's, that's pretty cool. We're going to do some of that stuff. Yeah, like that's that's it. <laughs> and Hitler and Napoleon were in, in in contrast to all these colonial empires like the British and the French Empire were trying to build a, a contiguous empire in Europe to unite the European peoples. Right. And then dominate the rest of the which world. makes it more roman than these other empires were it makes that's why that's why I, I wouldn't classify the the british empire as a recreation of rome because it wasn't doing the same thing right mm-hmm. the same thing with the french empire even the spanish portuguese empires all these other things they they imposters they, <laughs> they were though they, they they didn't actually they they tried to project it outward right as compared to again doing as you say and uniting the western world under a hegemonic concept and that that just wasn't their their purpose so so now we have this alternate thing that we've brought up a couple times the european union is the european union a reasonable successor to napoleon and hitler's idea <sighs> well I mean, it's trying to unite the white peoples of Europe, right? Isn't it? So you had you had two. Well, is, well, is it time to unite the white peoples, and, or is it time it, to exterminate and, and the, the white whole, peoples? Is, is it is uh, the European Union like a recreation of the Holy Roman Empire? Yes, it is. I would say that it. I, well, okay. I, I would. I would say yes. I would say that it is close, more closely aligned to the concept of the HRE um, than it would be to actual Rome, and that's or or Napoleon or Hitler. Right, yeah. Okay, Napoleon yeah. or Hitler obviously was going for I Rome. Agree. Go on. As compared to the HRE. You're but, correct. Continue. <laughs> you may proceed. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they they are uh, the European Union. Obviously, as we know, at this at the turn of the of the 20th century, there was two con- there was two conflicting ideas about European Empire. There was the Pan Europa movement, and there was effectively National Socialist Germany, um, or what became National Socialist Germany. Pan-Europa obviously predates this uh, into the late 1800s, the 1890s. So we can actually say that the European Union, the European Union is, is the actual successor one. Hitler was trying to do something greater and grander, in my opinion, uh, and, and more true to what should have been done. But the thing is, is that 
the problem with with Germanic expansionism is that it's usually too little, too late. That's kind of the, the big issue. Yeah. I know it's no, sad. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's sad, but it's true. It's the same. We look. We just gave the example of the scramble for Africa. You're uh, Germany not even getting involved in that until the 1870s, right? Like right towards the end of that. So and and they, all they got was uh, was uh, what was it? Uh, Cameroon, Tanzania. Uh, what's now yeah tanzania and namibia yeah namibia that was the other one i was looking for so you had so it was like german german oh, west to- africa oh, don't forget togo oh yeah i guess you get, it's like smaller than rhode island but <laughs> well now nah, it's bigger than that but togo it, yeah, has togo, more, it has more rubber togo and tobago yeah they have resources that's kind of the thing so you had the resource but again it was too little too late in order for them to actually build stockpiles of resources from that empire um and they spent more more resources trying to actually maintain that and that's why they lost them quickly like england england immediately during the outbreak of world war one went straight for germany's uh colonies and they, well germany also had colonies out in in southeast asia in the islands out there too true, true. but those were those were overrun immediately right so because the british already had the british the dutch the french already had all these these uh these established empires out there with resources with infrastructure right they had already the, the british east the british india uh armies and the british the british east india company um had all this infrastructure for hundreds of years at this point in time and the germans had only been there for basically 30 to 40 years if that and so you this it's not enough time to build up an empire in these areas and to, to can maintain projection in these areas and, and have established things um so the the european union be uh, you know to, to digress a bit the european union uh having started in the 1890s uh, as as a as a consolidation or an idea of consolidating europe itself right as the compared, idea of pan europa yeah, yeah. pan europa was, was trying to consolidate europe it wasn't trying to consolidate things under a european identity as some of these other empires were doing it was trying to consolidate europe itself right and clergy is the the main ideologue of this right so it's, it's he, a for the he, viewers uh richard richard von kudenhofen calgary yeah so he he was a. Uh, we'll get in more into him in a, in a later episode but he was a half japanese half austrian, austrian mischling <laughs> uh, a lot of other things actually went into his european side yeah. dutch and greek and and so forth he was he was a cosmopolitan you know, but was, his idea was he wrote a book called pan europa in 1925 where he talks about how we ought to sort of have a build a European Union on a, a sort of a, a managerial like the managerial state. We're going to have the the intellectuals and the aristocrats get together and try to unify Europe, uh, not through like the domination of one state or not through a military aristocracy, but specifically through a sort of Mandarin civil servant uh, class. Right, and he. He talks about in in Pan Europa how he contrasts the unification of Germany with the projected unification of the European Union. And he says, with Germany, you had two options uh, if you're looking at the world in like 1850. You've got Prussia in the north and you've got Austria in the south. There were two solutions. There's a big Germany solution and a little Germany solution. The big Germany solution is unite Prussia and all the little German states and Austria and all of Austria's uh, empire which would have been Slavs and all these other peoples, or the little solution, the little Germany, which would just be Prussia and the uh, other small states and leave Austria separate. And he said specifically that the best way to go about this, just as a matter of procedure, would be to gather up the German states that were purely German first, leave Austria out of the equation altogether. And that's what he wanted to do with Europe. He wanted to unite Europe and leave 
England and all of these colonies kind of out of the picture. Right. England was the biggest piece, or the England was the main country that had its own empire. Its own empire. I mean, yeah, the French did too, and the Spanish a little bit, but mainly England. If you're looking at the world, because England, England had become hegemonic at that point in time as an empire, more so than France and everything yeah. else had become, and that was kind of the, the big deal. But um, this this unification, like, so that the concept of, of large and small Germany, which is uh, there's there's two there's two views of that too is hitler had his own views between that which was called gross deutschland or klein deutschland right yeah large Germany. but gross deutschland for hitler was all the german states including austria but not austrian yeah, empire just austria stripped of yeah. its you know dependencies right and then klein deutschland was again everything except austria um which is what they eventually went with you know before the uh, well they they kind of got gross deutschland uh after the anschluss that was the whole point yeah. of that one um but also quick quick correction before then uh it was actually pan europe was written before 1925 uh, practical idealism was written in 1925. Oh, Pan Europe yep. was 1923 or something. I was, yeah, actually, yeah. I was. Uh, he was 25 that. years old when he wrote it. Yes, so. yes, that, yeah, he was 25 years old. But it, not, specifically in 1925, though, he wrote uh, Practical Idealism, which is the the big the big fun book that whenever we get to that episode, uh, we we discuss that in, in more depth. Which yeah, is, but anyway, um, European Union. But yeah, so the European Union, uh, it, that's that's kind of the, so the European Union has this uh, this inherited. Uh, drive to unify the European the European nation states, and it is headed by the Habsburgs, effectively, right? So they, while there are many obvious uh, other other groups uh, that, that so the are Habsburgs involved. lost that their empire gig in 1918, yeah, and then they hopped on with the Pan Europa the pan europa train right hardcore too because they uh otto von habsburg uh penned um a lot of the forwards he penned he penned the forward specifically to pan europa oh right. he was he was the son or he was the last crown prince of austria if i'm not mistaken yes. right because he was the son of um the last emperor uh, was it God, charles the guy who was emperor from 1916 to 1918 yeah so and that was they they write about that a lot also uh so the Habsburgs were, were very much about uh, this this concept of pan Europa and a, and a split. So, uh, when we talk about the cosmopolitan elites of the European Union, what they were trying to create, right? Like this is this goes back to our, our concept of empire and, and who runs it, right? Like why why there's a difference between Rome and and the European Union. Uh, Rome was obviously the center the cent- the original center of the empire of Rome were the Romans, right? Like the, the Roman people, the racial right. the racial demographic of Romans were the rulers. The of people Rome. who had beaten who had held the Celts out of uh, central Italy and who had beaten the Carthaginians and then expanded into the Greek empires like that Roman people. Right. Yeah. Romans. So and now this is what separates this is what separates fundamentally the European Union from Rome, which is why it makes it, it different and why it, it's corrupt as compared to actually grantuous is that their idea is and this is specifically from Habsburg and Calergy and these other guys is that they're trying to create an elite system. Everybody knows that an empire or any civilization has to have a core of elites. Now, how that core of elites is comprised is where this separates. Uh, the European Union, this is also what separates Hitler's vision of, of, a, of a, uh, you know, a grand Europe, like a unified Europe, as compared to the European Union's vision of, of, a, of a pan-Europa, is that there was a move away from blood aristocracy and to create, and what they wanted to create was an aristocracy of the mind, as to quote Calgary specifically, uh, and backed by, by Habsburg. So Habsburg had this bad taste in his mouth from his family, obviously doing a lot of inbreeding and fun stuff like that. So they saw a lot of corruption, or they use this as justification of a corruption of, of, of elite blood, so like blood aristocracy, uh, 
uh, was to them uh, as pen it's, it's innately um, it's innately dis- not necessarily dysgenic, but that it will become degenerative over time, right? Psychologically, uh, strength and all this other stuff kind of breaks down, and so their idea is that if you collect. And this goes back to what you were saying earlier about you were able to bring your guy from Wisconsin to the heart of the empire, right? Like, or to bring him into the imperial institutions, bring him to the capital, right? You, you can find the basis of empires. You can find all the best people throughout your empire and draw them into the center and draw them into this apparatus in order to, to strengthen it with the best of the best that you have available to you. And so that's the that's the basis of the European Union's concept of bringing all this multinational, multicultural, multiracial people into these major cities, and from that the the natural the nat- they will naturally select themselves out to be the aristocracy of the mind, the best of the best. Will the cream of the crop will right. rise to the top. Um, so that that all seems good. I mean, that seems like the way to do things, right, right? In theory, right? In theory. But as we all know, that can only honestly work from refined groupings. And so, bringing in the absolute lowliest of Africans from you know the the the, the dregs of society, you're not going to get the, the best of the best because your IQ spread is going to be too great. There's other okay. Factors well, to that you're as well. you're getting all racialist on me, but <laughs> like, what if we just take? What if we just take smart Africans? We just take Igbo tribe Nigerians. We just take people with IQs over 130 and just have a a cosmopolitan aristocracy running Western civilization uh, or running the whole world, drawn from the smartest of the smartest. And Why, what's wrong? With, I don't I don't see a problem here. <laughs> In theory, there's not necessarily that that's that's what it that's what it should be right but that's what that's not what it is and that's the worst part this is why why doesn't that work yeah well and i think i think russia is also a good example of this as well because you had a german aristocracy running a bunch of non-germans with throughout the russian empire which is probably why there was that the ability for communism to take seat and have such an issue with the bourgeoisie is that you have this this ruling elite that has no connection to the to the, the 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 body populace and so they're going to necessarily make uh, judgment calls that are antithetical to to the prosper uh, the prosperation of, of, of the, the actual empire itself of the people of the empire. Okay, that's good. So you're saying that, yeah, I, I agree. You're going to have an elite who isn't connected to the people and therefore runs the whole state in their own interests and not in the collective interests of all of the entire nation. Right, which is exactly which what is going to result in a horrendous tyranny, and, despotism, all that fun and stuff. Faggotry right. And, the World Economic Forum. <laughs> you know? Okay, but I've got another reason for you. It's that if you look at Hitler's model or you know any most empires that have arisen naturally, they arise on a military aristocracy. Right. So they ar- arise on people who are used to getting a bunch of guys and putting them into groups and then building them into a team and then fighting an enemy who might be vicious. And naturally, those people are not just selected for on the basis of intelligence. There's a little bit of selection for intelligence, but more importantly, there's a selection for moral toughness right? and loyalty and not just slave loyalty like you might have in the European Union where, well, you know, you get your degree from Georgetown and then you get promoted to the World Economic Forum. Or I don't know how, <laughs> how that's supposed to work. Right. I was never clear. <laughs> but and because well, no, that, that comes. And then you're back. just going to be some shithead who does exactly what your despot overlord Jew right. tells you to. Because you're just a bureaucrat and like a paper pusher that's trying to make it through the ranks through through that type of thing. But that that comes down to the, what we talked about before of of the the three elements that make empire, which are obviously uh, militarism, spiritualism, and uh, mercantilism. Those things don't come all at the same time and that's i think what what is the difference between what hitler was doing and what the eu is doing is that they're utilizing the the eu is is looking at it like part like 
entirely from a, a mercantile or a mercantile uh, viewpoint. An Anglo Jew is yeah. <laughs> materialistic John Stuart Mill point of view. It is definitely, yes, it is definitely a Jewish point of view, and this is noted specifically by Utilitarianism in its most disgusting and depraved form. It's awful, in my opinion, but that's the How problem. How many hedons do I get <laughs> for having sex with this Ooh, heavy, heavy shit there. Lots of hedons, therefore we should do it. Right, and there you go. But that's then that's the EU. Effectively, right? Like it's that. Well, what is what is Epstein? I mean, I'm not trying to be an ass, but what did, <laughs> what did he what did he provide for the empire? That's a conspiracy he, theory. Uh, you're just saying, but like, <laughs> well, I mean, Epstein and, and Maxwell did what? They provided little boys to the empire, right? That was their that was their goal, and so that, that's you're not really far off. It sounds ridiculous when you it's, say it I, like I that. I know it sounds so ridiculous, but, but it is people, the case. You know, Mozart wrote a wrote an opera about the the Ottoman harem. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> it was supposed to be funny, I think. Yeah, but they they, they almost banned it. It was the thing. But because it was funny in Europe in the 1700s, the idea of having a state based on sodomy was funny. <laughs> it was outrageous. Yeah, it was so ridiculous. <laughs> it had it had to be the only way that you could actually the only way you could say that is that is like through humor. It's yeah, like, it's, it's just funny. Stage There's no comedy. way this could ever actually happen. That's just supposed to be because they're Turks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's the only explanation. The weirdos across the sea. But yeah, no. So, so digressing back to the to the, the the three components, as you were saying though. The, most of the time where you have the real good blood aristocracy it comes from militarism organizing men into doing something spiritualism and militarism have to precede mercantilism as far as an empire is concerned They're, like that is the final piece of the puzzle mm. these things don't come together all as one it's like oh it's like the magic fire trifecta where you have to have all these things in place before it can occur spiritual things are prior to material things yes Shocking, right? Uh, yeah, I know. This is this, this is against everything I've been taught. Oh, oh you don't say. <laughs> so yeah, you have to have you have to have your spiritualism. You have to have your militarism. Uh, and because the thing, you have to have the spirit to gather the military force to then use the military force to acquire the mercantile position. These are the three steps to empire, and the the the, the EU is doing it backwards. That's why it's so corrupt and disgusting is because it's looking at it, again, from the Jewish perspective, which is why all Jews are basically corrupt and disgusting is because all they do is think about mercantilism. They don't care about their own spirituality, and they definitely don't care about militarism unless they're use, unless somebody else is doing it for them, right? right? Um, this is why they, they use the United States as a, as, a, as a bludgeoning weapon. Effectively, the United States is, is just a, a use, a, you know, like a, 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 paras, a parasited puppet empire of, of, the, of the Jewish mercantile yeah. state. So uh, this, this all brings up an interesting thing that I've been thinking about, which is, if you look at Western uh, European history since the fall of Rome, I'm, I'm this whole argument I'm about to give is sort of a refutation of the ultra conservative position of like monarchy or aristocracy. Mm -hmm. And so the way that the European states formed basically over the centuries was through a military aristocracy establishing order, and then building up principalities and then later kingdoms uh, like the Holy Roman Empire coming emerging from the principalities uh, or the dukedoms of Saxony, Bavaria and and then France same thing the different principalities were sort of uh, started to be subordinated to the Ile-de-France and to Paris and then by the time of say the 161700s you had a you had the descendants of that military aristocracy who were the aristocrats of the European nations who were in power and they justified their rule like if anybody asked them when the enlightenment came around and people started saying well why should you be in charge should right. other people be in charge they said well it's because i have property 
Yeah. Wrong fucking answer. Yeah, that is. The real, the, the, <laughs> you have property as an aristocrat in 1700 because you are descended from people who successfully organized states out of chaos over right. the centuries. That's a reasonable claim. And that's something that people could respect and understand. Okay, well, you're the Duke. You're probably selected for certain good qualities. Right. If you're properly educated, you should continue to be the Duke uh, because your ancestors formed this state. Yeah, we're talking about but eugenics they, before it was called that. Yeah. But they said, but their justification and the ultra conservative defense of these states is, well, it's just the will of God and that I have more property. Right. And you still see this in the conservative movement in America. Say, well, better, you know, you have more money, therefore you're a better person. Why are you a better person if you've made money in a already politically established state? where you didn't have to engage in, in, in violence against an enemy. You didn't have to build, order men in, into a political system. Why should we think that you, as the leader of a, uh, a business or a conglomerate, are better at forming a political entity than somebody who has formed a political entity? Right. And so that's, that's <laughs> going forward into the... Uh, the stage of civilization where we're at, where we have big empires that are political, there is political control, like political, there's no question of little uh, barbarian tribes having to fight with one another or fight against barbarian invaders in a way. Right, yeah. But now we're like reintroducing that same problem in sort of a different form rather than having to build uh, states again. We already have the states, but these states are disintegrating and you've got these states are bringing in outside forces, immigrants, right. uh, on, on big scales. And these immigrants are political and they are able to think as groups and act as groups. Yeah. And so, like, the way I see it, the only way to fight these people or to bring order into the Western world is to is purely political. You have to form those political groups, political parties. Sorry for shilling, but you have to form political parties well, to fight on a poli explicitly political basis and then the and and you know getting money and getting uh, resources of course a piece of that right. that's an important piece like of that struggle. political force political it's political violence but you can't but you can't just take like there's sort of a, a way of thinking in conservatism and in even in in uh, dissident right wing politics where it says well if we just get a rich guy this rich guy can then give us the resources to then build the political apparatus well how are you going to build that political apparatus when it's not selected for on the basis that those original states were, which is on the basis of bravery and toughness and moral um, commitment to your group. Right. When you're just given the money. Right. It's a fundamental flaw. You're basically just emulating what the European Union is as, a, as a great state. Right. And that, as we see that that more and more of the of the breakup and not to <laughs> we, we again, we're talking we talked about federalism and all this other stuff and the consolidation of power and centralization. We're, we're seeing. I'm not. I, I'm assuming it has to be deliberate because if you see this this kind of breakup happening in the United States, even and not to bring in modern modern politics to this at all, but we just saw a massive like whether whether someone's on the side of this or not. This is not the point of the, of the conversation, Th but it is to the point that this is breaking up the empire faster. The dissolution of Roe v. Wade has <laughs> <laughs> like it bringing bringing that power back to the states. Okay, so for our European listeners. Yeah, well, no, it's already spread over there. We uh, yeah, have, yeah. But, uh, who knows these case names? Oh, yeah, oh sorry. Yeah, the, the abortion. Abor yeah, making the, abortion Ill not illegal, but making it so that it is up to the 
individual states to decide whether or not it is to be legal within that state. Right. And so that's that's kind of the thing. And then there's also I think there's a clause in the Constitution at some point that says that if something is legal in one state, then it should be legal in all states. And then well, so this, they, no, no, yeah. you're, you're thinking of that's the um, full faith and credit clause. Oh, right. Yeah. Which is to say that if I if Maryland issues a driver's license, then Pennsylvania has to honor it. Oh, so right, if, yeah. if or if Massachusetts issues a fag marriage license, then Connecticut has to honor it. Right. Okay. So there we go on that one. But again, now you would think it, you would think that that would apply also to uh, concealed carry licenses. Oh, but it doesn't. Does not. Right. Because because again, no no one follows the Constitution in this country anyway. So that's like kind of the issue. There is yeah, the real, Constitution's a joke. Like whatever. At this point in time, yeah, because like there's no central. There is actually no centralization. We're seeing that more and more and more. And this just solidifies it. And the next thing on the chopping block is actually gay marriage and you know all these other types of things. They've already announced it, which is it's like they're going to continue to break down the centralization of the federal government over time. I so but, but why though? That see that's the big question, right? And yeah, and, why why like if I'm Zog, I would want to keep Roe v. Wade, I would, wouldn't I want to keep it such that at the federal level, abortion is legal? Uh, well, not if you're trying to increase a specific demographic, that's not the one that you Okay, sure, replace, there's reasons, you know? but I, I, I think the... As far as consolidation the, the point is you were getting at, I, I thought, was that you would want to... Yeah, you want to maintain it in order to you, continue you, like, no, it's, centralization. No, you, you get you you get rid of... The, Roe v. Wade, you say that it's now it is now up to the states to decide, not because you want there to be fewer abortions, but because you want the states to have to take responsibility for banning or for allowing abortion. Right. But that, but to my point is that that was that. And the states will all allow abortion, I think. Mm, maybe. I, I, maybe initially. Initially, there's going to be some conservative states that ban it. But yeah. then you're going to see Antifa and all the leftists go and put pressure on those states. True. Yeah. Who will break down and give up. But in my opinion, though, it's like what, I, what I'm confused about, not that I'm necessarily confused about, but it, it is something that is interesting to me. And this this goes into to the EU as well here and, and the concept of world government, world empire. Right. Because that's the next bit of the Reich's idea is total world world empire. Um and there's not you can't actually have a war if you're trying to build a world empire you don't want to have other contending empires and if you already have contending empires like the european union or the usa the first thing you want to do is break those down and make them weaker so that you can pick up all the pieces as they right. fall and one of the best ways to do that is to decentralize or de- make that make it decentralized uh, make the empire decentralized so that it becomes frail and weak and has cracks roe v wade i think is one of those those that purpose of that is in order to go back and have the states fighting amongst themselves to break down the concept of consolidated centralization uh which is why they're going to continue to do the other ones gay marriage and all these other other you think they're going to get you think they're going to um make it so that gay marriage is not legal or is it is not mandated at the federal level they've already announced that like that's the the supreme court has already put that on the chopping block so they're going to they're going to overturn roberta capelin yes uh whatever case that was where she roberta capelin notorious jewish uh lawyer uh was the charlottesville uh the main the main uh person behind the charlottesville case uh the civil case against jason kessler she was also the one who did who who argued gay marriage before the supreme court Mm. for anybody who, who didn't know that i've actually read some of her her book uh, oh, how have you? How, yeah, how is that? She's, it's, oh, so, it's yeah. the most tiresome thing. 
just a bull dyke lesbian Jewess. You don't say evil and also, but not even fun evil. She's just boring evil. No, we don't have any good villains anymore. Honestly, there's a few out there, but that's just not the. There's not fun, or or they, they they don't have enough spiritual ideology in order to actually make themselves cool villains. Um, but beyond that, though, is yes, I do believe that they are actually trying to weaken the American Empire so that the the Pieces they can integrate can be, it with Europe. Well, not just yeah, integrated not just with Europe, but just a a and M, like a world empire. Right, but yeah. anyway, Europe. I just yeah. say Europe because that's sort of the logical next step. Like right, kind of going from Klein Deutschland to Klein Deutschland. Right, in Klerigi's move, you wanna. I think they're gonna try to create an Atlantic Empire first, which is I hate to I hate to quote Orwell again, but I mean. It's, it's 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 kind of what they're doing. They not just an Atlantic Empire, but I think they're starting there because obviously they can't get to Russia yet and they can't get to China yet, right? So those those empires are kind of out of the thing. And there's also a lot of there, there actually is an African Union. Most people don't know this. Like there is an, an AU, and it's so it's <laughs> it's so like inert. It doesn't do anything. It can't do anything, right? It doesn't have the backing of of the the I. I mean, it has right, like African IMF and everything a joke else. To begin with, right? It's sad. Have an it, African super state. I mean, come on. But and they, but they actually have troops. The AU sends troops to Sudan and the conflict now in, in Rwanda with the, the you know the Democratic Republic of the Congo and also there's stuff that's going on right now. But the thing is, is they don't have to worry about that, right? The, okay, the, but the world government doesn't have to worry about Africa and have to worry about breaking them up. They can totally be subsumed later. Okay, but this isn't all as absurd as it seems because isn't clarity onto something here when you are trying to build a state the most the first thing you do or one of the first things you do is you establish justice mm. and so you say i am the duke of this petty little village and if one of you peasants goes and steals from another peasant you're not just peasant B isn't allowed to go and murder peasant A in right. retaliation. You have to come to me, the duke. I will esta- I will figure out what happened and then I will give you justice. Right. So that's just the the most rudimentary form of state formation, which is and it's your- kind of what what the European Union is is you are going to give up your sovereignty as a nation mm-hmm. to this greater um, bureaucratic entity yeah. which will then decide and arbitrate your your interstate disputes right and and for the eu right but this is what i think what separates the eu compared to the eu has the better model of it which is why it is more of a successor state to rome than would say the united states uh especially because here's the deal you have this this breakup again and to your point yeah if you are in a situation of centralization, the duke, baron, or king, or whatever, is going to dispense justice, just like the, the federal government of the United States is supposed to be doing, right? That's like their whole main goal. The overturning of Roe v. Wade and these other things is making that less of a thing. They're, the central government no longer is, mm. is yeah, the, the central authority. government of America is no longer arbitrating these disputes. Right. It's yeah. no longer it's no longer the central arbiter of justice for these these you know cultural or whatever you know. Uh, talking points these 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 hot points right these these flash points of, of conflict um so the more and more that it breaks down the ability for the central government to be the arbiter of justice the less and less of an actual centralized structure we have the less and less of an empire we have and that's kind of i probably would imagine that is that is the absolute goal is to break down the empire and because they've had this they've had this concept for some time it's not like a new concept to to Remove democracy, right? The removal of democracy 
was written about in the 1890s as part of Pan-Europa. Wow, so, wow, my, the gears are really turning in my mind right now. So <laughs> The hamsters. I, I, the hamster is spinning. The hamster wheel, the hamster is running really fast. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, as National Socialists, mm-hmm. we would say, well, if Amer- Zog tearing itself apart is good, but really long game this is actually helping the sort of global system. Oh, yeah. Because I, I would say, like, what they're most afraid of is a movement or a you know, the rise of a political movement in America, which then takes control of a, of a still powerful America and is then able to bring freedom to right. Europe and integrate the European states into a, an American-led system right. where the Europeans are... An given, Atlantic given, empire. And, 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 right, an empire, but not a gay liberal empire. Right. <laughs> a, uh, a sort of SS a, a Western empire, a real Western empire again. On, I, a real, on a real Roman model and not on a fake and gay Jewish model. And right, but I think it also that also probably plays into why the Jews are probably trying to decentralize the United States because perhaps they do feel that their power is slipping. And the fact that they've all come out of the shadows now, you look at Biden's cabinet, it's all Jewish, right? We've seen this 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 kind of fall of empire before. And this happens. Atali writes about this as well in his book. I highly recommend this to all the, the, the viewers to, to read this book, um, where he talks about how it, it's kind of this cycle of Jews move into mercantile state. They prop it all up. They go out in the open. Jews get, you know, show it. And and then you know the, the empire is taken back over by Goys, and so they're fearing that because again they have they've taken the reins. Right, currently. The, the Jews are trying to break out of the Jew life cycle. Of- yeah. <laughs> oh crap! It's happening again. But they're going to try to destroy the empire. I'd imagine before that happens, because I'm sure they they do actually fear a populist uh, party coming to power in the United States and taking the reins of power of this empire. Which again, if the United States was to fall back into the hands of popular you know populist uh, sentiment they would automatically pull out of this world this this world empire nonsense and so the the jews plan of world empire would instantaneously be thwarted if, if what is currently the largest empire on the planet he falls into the hands of the opposition so the only way they could possibly foresee to do this again as i said break it up into a small pieces like smash it with a hammer and then just try to pick up the pieces and, and amalgamate it into something else recycle this into something new and the only way to do that is to create you know fissures in any possible way overturning these these established because they, there's no reason why they would have overturned these these rulings it, why if they were going to do it they would have done it uh 20 years ago 30 years ago but they didn't do it because of that it's the 70s they've had it it's because it's been a, a talking point They've used it as a weapon leverage over so the population. Then the Jewish uh, system would at least tolerate secessionist movements, mm-hmm. uh, at least weak ones and impotent ones. Right. Because secessionist movements are necessarily dangerous. If you get a, like, say you have Texas secedes from the Union, but then establishes itself as like the Texas Reich. Right. Well, that's a model that everybody's going to want to follow. Yeah. And you can't have that. So Domino you, after effect. You, yeah. you, you do have a it's a certain a sort of balancing game, because you see, strangely, the system tolerates things like Catalonian independence movement. Mm-hmm. I once went to a, a soiree in D.C. Uh, I got invited by a guy <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was like. Neither of us gave a damn about the reason for it being there. We were just there to have a couple drinks and and hit on girls or whatever. Ooh, spicy. Uh, But it was was Catalonian independence. Why is there a Catalonian independence thing with Congress critters and and whatever in D.C.? Like, who gives a damn? But there and why are they tolerating this? You would think they would want 
integration, why are they tolerating the idea of Catalonia breaking away from Spain? Well, and I think that that comes into they tolerate this totally things. impotent political well, movement uh, as on far purpose. As, it's it's impotent on purpose, I would imagine. Here's the deal, though, because it's like when somebody tries to secede from a powerful entity, they are seen as foolish by the majority. Right. So like when Texas tries to leave, it's like, oh, the, empire, the U.S. is at the height of its empire. Why would you leave? That's ridiculous. Right. You're just being stupid. And so they brush off the concept of secession or, or of independence. Right. So that when the empire actually does fall, all these other nations that could have had independence and have already established themselves at the time are then now scrambling to catch up. It's Germany in 1871 again. You're getting too late to the party for you to be able to actually have a viable stand on your own. And that's the same thing with Catalonia or any of these other any of these other these these things. Right. Um except for when you need to actually use it to break up something serbia and kosovo for instance um in order to cause division within a specific area that's a problem that's a problem state so the the issue with with uh you know like the, the breakup or the breakup of the united states is in my opinion absolutely deliberate uh and the, the but the issue then there now is that Again, secession by Texas has been on the table for decades. They do it all the time. They're always just like, oh, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And everybody brushes them off every time because it's nonsensical because the U.S. is at the, at the peak of its civilization. Now that the states are actually starting to break apart based on these these political rifts, no one's even talking. And, and Texas has already has already fielded another thing for secession, right? It, it makes sense now. Yeah, Texas is kind of our Ukraine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's actually pretty true. Um, and it definitely was in the 1800s, for sure. Um, but if, if, if Texas was to secede, to secede now, right? So here's the deal. Texas used to have, at one point in time, over 70% of the military force in the United States. They provided over 70% of the military force. When? It, uh, uh, like, through, I think it was throughout the 1990s, I think, was when it stopped being that way. Really? Maybe not. They, they were rec- I could imagine the whole the South. Yeah, the South, but, but Texas, well, te- even if it wasn't uh, 70 from Texas, the Texas individually had the highest re- individual recruitment of state, like the individual oh, oh, state yeah, things, I right? That. So Texas put in the most military power. Had Texas seceded at the point in time where it had that military power to, to then pull out of the U.S. military, it would have been a military rival to the United States in and of itself. It's been as small as it was compared to the size of the U.S. It would have been a military rival yeah, to I'm the U.S. I'm thinking of 1990s Texas, like very, very white, yeah. blonde women driving big black SUVs everywhere. Right. Uh, dudes just trying to join the army and like shoot hajis. Belt buckles the size of your face, right? Yeah, like okay. that. I could, yes, that I could see turning into a. That, yeah, that, that's that's Zog. Zog doesn't want that. So what has Zog been really, really pushing in the past 20 years? The emasculation of the military, the destruction of the military, the moving more and more of, of quotas of, of non-whites and trannies and all this other stuff. So now, if and now if Texas secedes, they have a weakened military that can't stand up to, to Zog in and of itself in a prime. So they they over time weaken the ability for even secession to be a viable concept. So and then even if they do secede, that's still one tiny little piece of the puzzle. It's also on the Mexican frontier. They're weak. They have basically a fifty percent Mexican population now at this point in time. It's it's done. It's yeah, over with. Texas right. has been destroyed. The the ability for for Texas to secede is no longer really viable. And if it is viable, it's it not going to yeah, be a, a massive a sort of empire. fake and it would be a little petty imitation of the greater Zog American state. Right. And then on top of that, because of the of, of, of Zog weakening places like Venezuela uh, and Colombia and all those other northern South American countries, right, with the trade, the, 
Texas, Texas would if, if if these empire or these nations in South America had actually still been strong and viable and part of the trade, you know, they, uh, systems and everything else, and been able to produce oil and all this other stuff, in uh, Texas had had seceded, you would have had the port cities of Texas actually being viable market cores for the Caribbean. They are no longer that because there is no actual person or no no other nations within that that area, right, that geographic an, an area. Independent to, Texas could have made deal could have made deals with a free Venezuela for oil and right. and supported itself. And and totally. well and not just that, but also have outlets for its sales of oil because Texas is a large producer of this. So and the fact that they have weakened oh, yeah, all the good point. Yeah, they, they they've weakened all all their 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 regional allies that would have been there. So there's no really there's no real way for now Texas to become a, a viable independent state without having to do a lot of catch up and a lot of rework. And again, there's so much immigration into Texas right now. There's they would have to spend decades, if not more than that, in order just to repair themselves on a demographic level to get back to a cohesive level of government and self sustainability, militarily, uh, economically. Yeah, this sort of reminds me of the. Assyrian policy of, you know, the Assyrian Empire of the seven six hundreds BC in the yep. Middle East. They, in the Bible, you read about this how they used to take big populations whenever they'd conquer somebody and then just deport them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like all right, we got Kurds here, put them in Palestine. We got Jews here, put them in Iraq. This. We got. <laughs> We got some uh, Acadians, yeah. Sprinkle them around like the uh, Lebanon. Yeah, like here, have fun. Like enjoy your new, new, enjoy your new home and screw it up, please. And and that's kind of what we're seeing. So it's like it's a deliberate weakening of the American Empire over time by Zog in order to facilitate well, it's, it's creating funny world empire. I, I think the current elites, their model of empire isn't Rome. Maybe it is a little bit, but uh, there's probably look, a fetishism there. I'd imagine they look at other things too. They look at, and Clergy talks about it. I, I remember seeing in some of his books. He'll talk about things like the Persian Empire right. or the Egyptian Empire. China or is a big one. China, like they'll talk about these Eastern despotisms and say, "All right, we want to do that. that that's too. that. that. <laughs> that's hot. That is hot. We're doing that. Yes, and we're doing that to these white people. And Egypt, Egypt was a huge one for Calgary, like a massive, massive." point that he always enjoyed like that was his oh god yeah like total fetishism of egypt uh because uh, specifically for the racial demographics so he brings up the egyptian uh population as being an absolute deracinated mixed brown race ruled over by a core uh of of uh refined elites right like that's how he viewed egypt that's obviously not the case for all of egyptian history that had been you know over the course of three thousand years of race wars and dealing with the nubians and these other groups or whatever it had become that sure and that's where you also get you know the introduction of jews within egyptian history and all this other fun stuff uh so originally there was a homogenous group that was militaristic right you had the the palette of narmer that that depicts this as one of the first uh, egyptian um he was the first uh, pharaoh of United Egypt. Yeah, it's, yeah. And he he brought you know obviously the crowns of northern and southern Egypt together or whatever, and, and he and he he did it through military, right? Through military means, it's spiritualism and militarism was the right. first he, two and, things. And in uniting the two crowns, it was showing that you know even though Upper Egypt has beat Lower Egypt, we still respect Lower Egypt. It was kind of like the North and the South in the Civil War, yeah. where it's like we beat you guys, but you're still cool. Now be part of our empire. Yeah, and well. At least, you know, until like the last right. 30 or 40 and years. Then, but he also wasn't because they were invading down and they were they were pushing out a lot of uh, the Nubian groups. You can see in, in, specifically in the palette, uh, the palette of Narmer has a lot of, of nuance in it as well. It does depict two different racial groups 
at conflict. Um, Narmer himself, obviously being an Egyptian, right? And then the it doesn't explain who the the subjugated individual is that's being beheaded by Narmer, or not really beheaded. Sorry, his head smashed in by a mace. Uh, they don't depict who this individual. They don't explain who this individual is, but you can tell that it is of one of the the southern. It, they look sub-Saharan African more so than they they do the other groups. They have it as if you look at the other uh, throughout throughout Egyptian. Um, I guess. Uh, wall scribblings you have like <laughs> this depiction of, of the of the the non-white groups and they have they're very they're very uh robust in their in their artistic ability to depict the differences of between the races so there's there's clearly a racial divide uh throughout egyptian history of uh, i'm skeptical that the the guy that narmer who, who's uh the guy whose head narmer is bashing in is a, a black well, he's probably not totally black. Well, he's probably, I mean, Narmer controlled Southern Egypt and was taking over Northern Egypt. So unless that's depicting like a, well, a, a border war, he'd probably be fighting, uh, like they also had problems with their Eastern neighbors, the, right. the or Western neighbors, the Libyans who were, well, I, thought, I thought Narmer was, group. Narmer was from lower Egypt, yes, which is Northern Egypt. Negative. It's the other one. Wait, no, Egypt, lo- the highland of Egypt is upper Egypt, which is the South Nile flows North. Yeah. So like, is that yeah? Upper Egypt is is the southern part, and yeah. Lower Egypt's the yes. northern and part. Yes, and Narmer was from Upper Egypt. Oh, I thought he was from Lower Egypt. No. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting then. Um, well, then it could have been like oh, yeah. So it could have been it could have been anybody at that point in time. But the point is, so afterwards though, you do have this. That's where you get the the Nubian kings. Sorry, throughout the. Um, yeah. So fast forward twenty five hundred years. Right. Yeah. So you get, you get the actual kangs, the black kangs. Yeah. Egypt. For there was one dynasty, right, that lasted a little while. That was all blacks. Uh, they were all Nubians or whatever. That's that's where they get the mythos from. That from you know here. Um, so, the 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 point being though is that you do have uh, this 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 conflict or whatever. Then and, and however it came to be, Calgary points out that the majority of the mass population is. De- deracinated and and like it's not a homogenous race um and he makes that point a number of times specifically because that's like that's his fetish for the european union is to have that that's why they're importing the concept of importing a bunch of non-whites into it is to make a deracinated lower class that is ruled over by a refined aristocracy of the mind um and right, so- it's funny you would look to toward egypt i mean it's hard to learn about the uh, racial history of egypt just because you're it, there's not a lot of there's not a lot yeah. of evidence uh well, and, and unfortunately a lot of the evidence that there is and uh, a lot of the scholarship on this is written in german yes uh and was done in the the turn of the cent of the uh the last century which is fine for calorie though because obviously right, because that's, that german. Was, those books are all around and he had yeah. ac- he had he had access to the uh, tools yeah and, but and but more so than that i would imagine that being part of the elite Calgary had access to literature that we don't have access to well that's a daring hypothesis yeah I, I know it, but there's if, if we know if we do know that there are things in the Vatican archive that are not made to the public there has to be other literature that's not made to the public either and especially if you have the collective elites that want to but regardless the I think we can <laughs> I think we can deduce that Egypt Egypt was following sort of the same uh, trajectory as any other civilization. Right, yeah. And, and it's, it's, safe, it's safe to assume that they had multiculturalism in their later stages. Right, and, and even, if, even if that's, again, getting beyond that, even if that's not the case or whatever, that's at least still the idea held by these elites today. That's what they, they at least fetishize today, right? That's the, the model they would like to go after, um, specifically specifically that of, of Egypt that they use so many, so many times over. Um, but with that being said, you you have this you have with that 
it's it's not organized. The way they're doing it isn't organized, right? In order to create empire, you have to do things methodically. You can't just have an open floodgates. That doesn't work clearly. Like they they must have also they they must also realize this. So in my opinion, there is something that this puzzle that the right wing like uh, things that we're affiliated with and everything else like that, even the left. I think there is a, a key component of this that we're all missing. There has to be because they're we're talking about people that rule the world they're not exactly the dumbest people on the planet like while they're not exactly the the the, the most you know refined genetically thinking, they're probably thinking decades or centuries ahead but my my question is can they really coordinate their actions very well because they don't have it's not like they, there's a military aristocracy where there's one guy who's acknowledged as like the leader right you have sort of different globalist honchos uh jefes big men like and we know who many of these people are we can point to say that this bill gates is powerful or uh george soros is powerful bezos uh, bezos is powerful Uh, musk musk is another one but uh, jack ma we don't it's hard to sort of tell how how they might actually be how to what degree they're able to do coordinated action to carry out any kind of plan or whether it's just sort of the they're sort of just stumbling forward and each each man is competing against each the other with his own sort of variant of the same rough vision and that's this comes back to your point earlier about uh having really no spiritual drive within the mercantile class kind of thing we were discussing earlier um where you would have more of an individual drive like more of a drive towards individualism by these by these mercantile elites that don't have this spiritual and militaristic backing again like musk and all these other guys yeah they're going to try to fight for again try to they they are going to be individualists they're not going to try to become hegemonic as as a as a group as a unified group because they want they're greedy that's this that's like characterizes most of these people is they're absolutely greedy so this sounds like a weakness it is a weakness an exploitable weakness hmm, you don't say <laughs> perhaps it is and i think that i think that it is probably a thing that you could exploit but at the same time you have to have the ability to play on that level in order to exploit it honestly well in, so you, in need your own, you need your own power base right that's kind of the big deal is to be able to consolidate a power base but that's the whole point of of this show is so to to get on a on a, an intellectual uh cohesive basis so let's go back to the Holy Roman Empire uh, immediately what springs to mind as far as an example of this phenomenon of needing your own power base to rival uh, or to to be a player within the system Mm -hmm. think of the Holy Roman Empire in the late 1200s and on the emperor wasn't as powerful and he Frederick II had to give away or in order to build up his own power had to give away uh, had to make concessions to the German princes uh, and give them lands and give them rights that they didn't have before and to sort of resign a lot of his powers so that he could do what he wanted to do and get and buy time. And that worked for him because his objective was to maintain his power in Sicily. Right. But it was disastrous for the empire because it led to 600 years of no unity right. or, very, or less unity. Yeah, very tenuous unity, if anything. And the way that other princes and dukes were able to become more powerful, like the Habsburgs, was by establishing their own land power base within the empire. So once you had that, then you could be a player on the sort of now within the empire, you are a player because there's no actual like top leadership that can really assert itself. Mm. And so the Habsburgs became uh, with Rudolf Habsburg in the like the late 1200s. Yeah. 
um, were able to set themselves up in Austria and then start building their own power outside the empire. And then eventually they became de facto the hereditary leaders of the empire, even though it was technically elected. Right. Um, they just got every, you know, they were the Holy Roman Empire, Holy Roman Emperor every time, and every they, election. And they chose very well, too, because, again, the, this, the city, obviously, of their capital is Vienna. Right. And that's a major trade route on the Danube. And also, as far as geographically moving between the Alps and the Carpathians down into their the rest of, the, of Europe. So they had they had all three of these elements they had already established they had the military thing because they had the frontier with hungary and with uh the balkans yep and they had the spiritual thing right because of again the holy roman empire element they had the backing of, of basically the church uh and they could you know they had catholic austria and bavaria next to them as, as allies so they had the spiritual aspect they had the military aspect and they actually at the time through this is very rare to see in a landlocked area they had the ability for for mercantilism they had the ability for for major trade and they they i mean look at i don't know if you heard, i'm sure you've been to vienna it's 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 gorgeous it's like yeah. the architecture like, even to this day still it's one of the most beautiful european cities you know and and this because they they actually were able to build this empire out of it and they it's all because they had the spear of destiny <laughs> i mean according well, and, Char a, and charlemagne's crown right okay according according to people like napoleon and hitler this would probably be the case yes they would actually believe this but uh oh hitler didn't believe that come on i i well himmler probably did but <laughs> himmler certainly did yeah um although to be fair i do honestly think hitler probably did put some clout to it the fact that like okay sure what is the coincidence that all these people happen to have these items hitler and these loathed the habsburgs of course he and did rightfully so right because they were basically traitors to europe after he figured out that they were you know moving towards the pan-europa thing that was a bent to deracinate the peoples of europe and create them as, as a as a a eurasian negroid slave race right mm. so what we're seeing now is just habsburg empire 2.0 yes we are actually so effectively it is kind of the hre 2.0 which is hre was basically roman empire 2.0 so well not well, necessarily but it was it tried to be it tried to be um or in, in certain elements it tried it it, it kind of tried yes the the habsburg state or the EU is now just the shadow or the bigger version of the late Holy Roman Empire, the the broken apart one. Yeah. A couple other things with the Holy Roman Empire that uh, we ought to bring in are some of the elements of its later history, mm. and that would be uh, the Reformation and the Thirty Years' War. Mm. So I think most people are, are familiar generally with the Reformation. The Catholic Church was overstepping its bounds and doing things that you're not supposed to do as a church at least yeah. you know, seem, seem to violate the principles on which your your own doctrine your, your religion is founded like uh, selling indulgences usury of, <laughs> and usury and martin luther uh being cool juice martin luther was an aw aw a pretty awesome guy in my opinion yeah he, he saw <laughs> what was going on and he was a bit of an autiste and he he thought no this is not consistent this is what the religion says and this is what we're going to do and he announced his critique of the catholic church and he, he initially only he was sort of a conservative he just wanted to reform things he right i don't want to break away and form my own church i'm 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 being i'm trying to be a fair guy here i just want to reform it but the catholic church would have none of it because he was he martin luther was competing against a catholic church so it was divided in a way, it wasn't. It didn't have like the singularity of vision that one would need to deal with a challenge like Martin Luther. If the Catholic Church had been more united uh, under a, a, ju a just ruler, a just pope, 
he might have seen, yeah, well, Martin Luther's right, and we're going to viciously repress him, don't get me wrong, but we are going to then institute all of his reforms. Right, because you can't have upstarts. That would be the reasonable way to handle it. And I think I think on some level they must have known that, but they probably, because of the, they, they weren't able to do that because you're sort of in the same trap that modern liberals are in where or modern jews are in where you see this challenge from this new a movement or, or people saying the truth and saying the things um that are absolutely true about the world and that have a correct vision of how a society should be ordered and you can't really you should be able to confront them directly but you don't have the like the globalist elites right now you're not united enough to really come up with that policy and implement it. I mean, do you think that's a, a, an overly broad statement of what was going on between the Catholic Church and Luther? I, I, no, I don't. I think it's actually spot on. I, it's you Because you don't, you, again, you're right. They, they didn't have consolidation of their own church. But I think that's also probably why Luther did what he did, because he saw that there was fractures. He saw that it was, just, it was basically a schism on the rise. Um, and he capitalized on it. And there was, well, to put it more generously toward him, he, he might have seen that there was the church was break that the church wasn't unified and there was just there was no way to do reform from within right and so you had to directly criticize it yeah and you, yeah you had to be blunt about it and so again 95 theses he did the bit and then got you know excommunicated in the whole nine yards and then he was like screw him doing my own damn thing and he did and that it took on because again it it wouldn't have been able to t- it wouldn't have been able to take root if there wasn't already enough division within the system in order you know to break start breaking apart like that but then what ended up happening for the empire was you had now two religions and the empire somehow held together yeah that's with, well kind of <laughs> two, two religions and then later calvinism and then yeah. offshoots of that you had mul- many factions but often just grouped as protestants versus catholics and a lot of the high up elites within the empire um a lot of the the princes who are the electors the se- of the seven electors three became protestant uh and now you've got an empire that's religiously split in addition to all of the the political splits that have already happened and and the the differences of of language uh, and of culture between the Germans, the Italians, the Burgundians, uh, I don't know, even between the Swiss and the Austrians and the Germans and the North Germans. So it just added this whole other layer of complexity to the empire, which meant it was no longer an effective state. Right. And then, which is what you see at the fall at the at the fall of Rome, is you have all these different institutional because like, you had you like Rome while it did institutionalize Christianity, there was a large pushback against that. You know, we saw that even even uh, later Roman emperors would come back and they'd reinst- try try to reinstitutionalize well, yeah, paganism. The apostate, yeah, yeah, like it, they call him an apostate. He was just a Roman. You know what I mean? Like he's he was following the original religion that was there before Christianity. Well, and, he was a, and, he was a, a a serious larper. Well, uh, he, right, but he you was know. a very uh, very much into Greece. So name and name Athens. he studied one. in Athens <laughs> and probably did some other stuff in Athens too <laughs> oh well let's not let's not be unfair not fair but so the, the thing is though is, is is that you you have you have this it's not cohesive right like there are there are conflicts of interest with spirituality there's conflicts of military interest uh and there was also conflict of mercantilism as well so you have like all three of the of the pillars of of empire were towards the end of it starting to crumble and and and, and you could see the fractures within them and, you know, to introduce uh, one more thing here, America, when the founding fathers were putting together America, 
they did look at the example of the Holy Roman Empire, and I, I remember in school reading some of the, uh, the Federalist Papers and them talking about the Holy Roman Empire and the, the good and the bad things about it. Well, as you mentioned in the last episode, they, the people forget that the Holy Roman Empire was still in existence when, when this country came into being. Right. <laughs> and we have in the Constitution the famous uh, Establishment Clause saying there, there will not be an establishment of, of religion, state religion. Right. And it's strange because you would think that that would violate the the general rule that you have to have a common religion a common um spirituality. a common spirituality in order to have a cohesive state right. uh you would think the founding fathers looking at the holy roman empire would say well we're not doing that <laughs> we're we're gonna establish one religion and yeah. anyone who doesn't agree with this can you know get out at the time it probably would have been easy to just do protestantism but so I mean, why why did the no establish why did not establishing a state religion in America work for as long as it did? Uh, that's a, that's a hard question. That's a, actually a really tough one. It's like how because it obviously it, that issue has, has come up now in the modern day, right? As far as as, as schisms of spirituality, right? I mean, I, I saw an people. article in the Times today where there were <laughs> some some liberal woman was arguing for uh, an establishment. She was arguing basically. She was arguing against the establishment clause, saying we ought to have an established, like like a secular kind of religion. yeah, basically. Yeah. That, yeah, I could see that. Or maybe it, it was the post. I don't know. One of these rags. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, they're all rags, but <laughs> but that's that's kind of so. Yeah, you would you would have to have an established either secular religion or something along those lines, and and that's the United States kind of did though have have a unified spirituality without the actual religion part where the spirituality was a spirit of conquest a spirit of re- revolution and that was they they did mention that a lot uh, within even the french revolution is a spirit of revolution right like that's like a con they even have a painting called the spirit of revolution mm. right? so you you have this spirit of revolution but again that can only last so long that's I, why you have to have propaganda constant look at cuba cuba is a great example of this you had a spirit of revolution there was no state religion throughout communism but the spirit of the revolution lives on Shea and Castro and all these other these I figures. would say the reason that the no or no not establishing a state religion in America worked was because nobody really believed any of the religion anymore <laughs> I mean yeah. they did but the elites didn't believe it like no, no yeah. nobody in 1776 was going to say they weren't going to make a serious political difference out of different types of Protestantism everybody basically agreed we're all Church of England, even though, okay, the right. king isn't the leader of our church anymore. We're just Episcopalians. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess they probably, they certainly did have some conflicts with the Catholics. Uh, Maryland was a Catholic colony, for right. instance. But I guess the, the, the dominance of the Episcopalian sort of humanistic Jefferson <laughs> religion yeah. was strong enough that you could have these minor, minority uh, religious groups yeah, Puritans uh, that and all were other groups. You know, maybe a little bit different and maybe uh, Maryland wasn't about to launch a, a secessionist movement right. to get away from America <laughs> because of loyalty to the Pope or something. They were still Anglos. Right. And that's, but with that being said, though, the spirit is then elsewhere. I think that's what, but it, but it wore off. That's the thing is that you can't, without an actual established spiritual basis, it, the, 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 the arbitrary spiritualism is going to eventually wear off because the people that kept it going are eventually going to fade into history. And so the new generation has nothing as far as institutions to establish themselves on a spiritual basis, and they're not going to have one. As we see now, we have an absolutely spiritualist population for the most part. Well, I'd say we have we have a sort of state religion not to uh, 
quote Mencius Moldbug or something, but oh you sort of have a, a liberalism as a state religion almost. Well, but that's it's it's or, or Holocaust worship and, right. and faggot worship. But I would say that, are sort that, of that's, state religion. That's also I would also say this, but that's, I think that's just a, a, a revamp of the spirit of revolution. Is that it's a different type of revolution? It's the communist revolution, right? It's it's the the sexual revolution. It's all these different types of revolutions that you well, have. I would just say it's, it, it said its base is just gross materialism. Is all it is. That's another it's, one. Yeah. It's there is one principle from which all American tolerated spiritual and moral precepts can be derived, and that's that consenting adults can do whatever they want. Well, and that was the, doesn't everything follow from that? Well, it was the foundation of the of the government in the beginning. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, they, like <laughs> okay, that, you know, it's, they 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 didn't want to pay taxes and all this other stuff. They wanted to be sovereign and blah blah blah. blah. But back and, then, that that wasn't that crazy because I I think people people didn't take it to its logical extreme. Right. People didn't say, okay, well, consent. We can be. I mean, back then, nobody would have agreed with the statement that consenting adults can do whatever they want. Right. Like, yes, it was relatively speaking individualist, but. It wasn't it, libertarianism. It was libertarian yeah. is, a, is, I think, a fair way to say it. Well, I would say I, the original U.S. wasn't. I Because, like, obviously, libertarianism, like, as it didn't really become solidified or codified as an ideology until after the French Revolution. But you still had that sentiment, right, where it's it's we're doing our own things we're we're kind of and you should have the right to be you should have individual rights yeah and all this self-sovereignty stuff. was a concept of it you know but but people were still embedded in their local community right and they still had loyalty to their churches and their their families so well, you didn't was, have technology to, to 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 you know break people apart and make distance a thing you didn't have cars you didn't have all these different things all these different things that that necessarily in a situation where you have a lack of spirituality or the spirituality is based in individualism you it, it makes it easier for people to be more individualistic as they get more technological freedom uh, as compared to back in the day where you're you're, well, you're I dependent say, uh, let's not introduce technology that complicates it too much let's True. just say let's just say migration right oh that's also fair yeah or, or nomadism actually as Atali puts it is a nomadic concept of being able to move from one place to the other and take your things with you um but you were because dependent. If techn- if, and I say that because if technology is the differentiator, then how do we explain the Roman Empire following similar uh, patterns? Well, right. But that's, to be fair, the, the Roman Empire, but the, the Roman Empire had actual spirituality. I would imagine that was the kind of the big difference. I mean, I don't know, thinking of Commodus' era. Uh, well, caught, you know, <laughs> maybe the elites didn't. But. <laughs> Lions, Flavius. But that was more of a corruption of the elites as compared to a corruption of the entire population, right? Like the Roman people uh, still had religion. No, so, they didn't. Well, like in Rome, like, you know, like, throughout the empire, I would, you have still religions of kinds you know you have like your your different things like sure rome itself was a decadent hellscape sure but that's one city in an entire empire you know like now you have you have a total lack of 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 uh, well you have a total lack of spirituality so the individuals whenever they get freedom to be able to be more individualistic they they don't have nothing to, to hold but the, the point i was making is that the the original american uh you know founders were dependent on their local on their local you know anything like the local butcher your local you know wheat your local production everything everything was everything was dependent upon others so you had more of a and i hate to use this term because it's not necessarily a real thing in philosophy but the concept of a social contract was there like you actually had to have a dependent social contract from the other individuals around you for necessity of survival as compared to now where we have so much ability to be individualistic that we don't really you know we don't depend on our neighbor most people don't even know their neighbor so like you can't really have you can't really have we've succeeded so much in centralizing everything including the economy that yeah 
those like local relationships just don't really matter. Right, because it, everything's centralized on the actual the actual market that is nebulous compared to to your local economy that doesn't really exist anymore. It's been removed and, and given over to a to a larger power. Um, so these types of things is what's going to cause larger fissures, larger fractions of, of things. And you can kind of see that I guess in the HRE as well. Uh, the, the the more and more that it was less dependent on this centralized element it became more and more dependent on these localized things and it caused further breakup so what then is the solution <laughs> man if we had the solution wouldn't we've already implemented it <laughs> now no i mean there's there's if the current it, system yeah. is is based on the precept that consenting adults should do whatever they want right and i think every i think everything follows from that i think gay marriage follows from that yeah uh economic do whatever you want buy whatever you want follows from that yeah rampant capitalism uh, not, uh, you, you can't have a draft because th- it would be preposterous in modern liberalism to have uh, the idea of collective responsibility to the yeah. state or forcing just, anybody to do anything forcing anybody to do anything it's ridiculous so the countervailing the opposite philosophy uh, so the the one little thing you can the one neat thing you can do to correct the entire system is to have a sort of collective mentality. Well, yeah, okay, so right, and yeah. and of course I know the conservatives are going to say communism, <laughs> communism. <laughs> but seriously, yeah. you can you can have a collective mentality and a, va- a you can put value on duty and and honor yeah. and working together and having community. And that is the only thing you can do to sort of fight against the the insane liberal Jewish material system. Well, that's, yeah, unified you know, unified vision isn't key, but also the unified vision still, is, is the backbone of the other three points. You still have this. There is a little bit in the American educational system and American society that inculcates and pushes into people's minds the idea of collectivism, teamwork, and being a real community right and those two things are high school sports and the military yeah football (laughs) football (laughs) your local high school football team and the military right i mean are there there might be some others but with those two the military is becoming less and less of that now of course high school sports is this strange survival of tribalism where you are allowed to take a bunch of kids put them together and say okay we're gonna win and this is how we build a team and subject them to some degree of discipline and with a lot of people me for instance it never leaves you yeah and so you just (laughs) go through the rest of your life assuming that that's how things ought to be and then you encounter individualism everywhere and you're like what fuck is this beyond frustrating this Mm -hmm. is bullshit i don't want this i want people to shut up and do what they're supposed to do and be a good team player and the military used to do it too. I mean, sort of, maybe still. Yeah, a until bit they in started time. institutionalizing, like you know, stress cards and boot camp and all the other fun stuff. So. Well, GLR George Lincoln Rockwell would have said that it started earlier. I mean, Ooh. he he was complaining in his books in the '60s that the military was no longer our fighting men, and it was just getting gay and and sissified. He's not necessarily wrong, so. <laughs> but no, certainly now with yeah. yes. Uh, drill sergeants yelling at you like pull out your stress card and go cry about it almost glad that he didn't live to see all this nonsense (laughs) he would have been they would have flipped out it's almost funny really yeah because i mean well to be fair he predicted a lot of these he usually oh it's gay in the military he used it as a funny word this is actually happening now it actually is gay i mean one if you the the new air force guidons are actually the rainbow flag (laughs) (laughs) the the yeah the air force like guidon or the 
the little standard flags that yeah. they carry around in the U.S. military. When they, uh, when they march around. You, know? <laughs> you do still see that there was that going on in the military fairly recently because mm-hmm. a lot of the people in right-wing movements are ex-military. Right. And you, you see uh, Proud Boys, Three Percenters, Oath Keepers, whatever. A lot of these groups draw heavily from veterans because you have guys who went through that sort of collectivist training and understand the value of thinking as a team and subjecting yourself to the greater good of the group. And they can't get it anywhere in society outside the military or outside high school sports. And so they form these groups and then they start thinking about politics or they start <laughs> thinking about politics and they form groups, whichever right. way it happens. And they can be very effective. Uh, if you look at you know, Charlottesville, for instance, I don't know what the numbers were, but I just remember a lot of the guys there were veterans. Yeah. And it's amazing the sort of spontaneous order, <laughs> to use the libertarian Anglo phrase, <laughs> the spontaneous order that emerges when you have a bunch of people who already know how to think collectively. Yeah. It's, but that's that's what that's what the system fears, though. It does. It's hardcore. Does it? That fear is that? absolutely what it fears. And so, the, what it tries to do is is remove the ability for you to even participate in that, which is why they're having more and more quotas of non uh, non whites in these in these institutions. There's a reason why they're pushing for whites to not be in the military anymore because they don't want whites to be able to naturally think collectively. So, and it, it helps it helps their ability to deracinate the that population. So all of these political questions that we've been talking about, things like individualism versus collectivism or centralization versus decentralization, it sort of brings it, it brings us back to the question of education. And I think that because if you ever read Plato's Republic <laughs> or really any book of ancient philosophy, you're expecting some sort of discourse on how to form a government or how to establish a military. But what instead you're treated to is pages and pages and pages of why triangles are important or (laughs) uh, yeah, why why we need to learn geometry or the, the ancient Greeks were right in doing that because they started, they saw that the way that a political system has to reproduce itself is through education. Mm -hmm. And so one of the main themes of this podcast, of course, is education and of how what the curriculum should be of a national socialist state or of a state that goes against and you know d- displaces the current evil and degenerate system. And one of the key points in this that we've been harping on a little bit and that I want to talk a little bit more about is the idea of language and how that how that needs to go into building your curriculum. So by way of illustration, in ancient Rome, the elite all knew ancient Greek. And that sort of became a thing after about the one, uh, after like the conquest of Macedonia and the, the 170s, 160s, 50s BC, Greece started to become a much more uh, important thing in Rome. And they'd they knew about the Greeks because of the Greek colonies in Magna Graecia. And so there was sort of already a Greek influence in Rome. But the Romans recognized correctly that the Greeks were the core of their civilization and the Greeks had already done the things in philosophy and in culture that the Romans couldn't really do themselves or if they were doing themselves would just be sort of weird imitation. Yes, reiteration of it. So the Roman elite all knew Greek. And in our world, we have 
Europe and we have America, England, Canada, Australia. We have Anglo-speaking countries and Europe. Everyone in Europe speaks English. Anyone who's educated speaks English to some degree, right. to usually to a fairly the, the high degree. The elites do the same thing. The World Economic Forums are held in English, all that stuff. Yeah. And I think English, the total predominance of English threatens to destroy our culture. I would say so. Because anybody who's educated in English isn't really educated in the other languages or in any other language. You see sort of liberals in America might know a little bit of Spanish. Uh, <laughs> yo hablo espanol. Right, muy, muy bien, y tú? <laughs> we can all... <laughs> you get a semester of it in high school kind of thing. Everybody does, but nobody, nobody in the Anglo world has a good basis in some other language like French or German or Italian, right. which have been the cultural languages of our civilization for the last 500 years or longer. Sure, Latin was an important one as well, and that's a whole other question. But just looking at the cultural languages, if we went back to, say, 1500, you would probably say that an educated man ought to speak Italian. Yeah. Second, maybe French. And third, maybe German or Spanish or English. But Italian was definitely the predominant language. And then of a century or two after that it would have been French. And then uh, in the 19th century, it was starting to become more English and German. Yeah, especially in the scientific community. It was definitely German was heavy in the late 1800s, early 1900s before the First World War. And so to sort of recover a pe- that that collectivist piece of our civilization, the all the thinkers that talked about how to not be individualists, I think we have to go outside the Anglo tradition because there's very little in that is not what is the the strongest current in English writing philosophers and literary people is not collectivism, but individualism. Right. So it sort of follows that German would be the cultural language of a future elite. And I think German language and the attendant German philosophy and literature provide a sort of a very good uh, counterbalance to the Anglo tradition. So that's sort of why when this this podcast we emphasize a lot of the German stuff. I do we are going to talk about the French and the Italians and the Spaniards and, and other great peoples of Europe as well a little bit. But it's um I mean can you imagine what how different it would be if you had in American England a the sort of the top five percent were your national socialist government and they or actually let's let's back up let's you haven't had the revolution yet right and you've got just a bunch of people sitting around talking it makes sense to be studying something that is outside of english and i think studying foreign languages is is, and this is going to sound like a very swiple argument so i get shit for it all the time on this but it does help you to think more about your own language and about how language actually works to make yourself better at communicating. Right. And I am very critical of the way I talk and the way I write and the way other people write and talk because our language is very badly used nowadays. I I couldn't agree more. (laughs) And it's very hard to not talk in these very derivative, very uh, meme ways where we're saying lots of words that aren't used in their correct meaning mm-hmm. in their original meaning which is a problem it, you the, the counter argument there's always the counter argument that well that's just how language is evolving naturally that's and so on and so forth. that is cope. actually contrary to what every great thinker in our civilizations ever said mm-hmm. 
George Orwell was famous for um, talking about Newspeak. Newspeak. Love it. And often news, this is brought up as a counter argument to linguistic reform. People say, well, Newspeak is you're just trying to make everything simple, make everybody dumb. George Orwell actually wrote a very long essay about the degeneracy he was seeing in English at the time, about too much fashionable usage of phrases that if you read sort of uh, articles that were written 50 years ago in this new, uh, this fashionable language of 50 years ago, it so- they sound ridiculous. Mm. They're unintelligible. And whereas a good writer like Orwell wrote in a very clear and classic way because he understood the, what the words actually meant and he understood how to communicate in a way that would be understood centuries later right. because he knew what the standard language was and what the, what the core of English was. Likewise, and I mean, all these guys, I mean, Orwell or anybody else who talked about purity in language, they typically studied Latin and Greek yeah. and French in, in England, at least, would have studied those languages. And it's, I think it's a, it's a lot to ask somebody to understand all of those languages. And we don't, it's, it's, it's a lot of work to study all it of those. Is, it is not an easy task, especially the older you get. Yeah. And German is is the one language of Europe that's never really had much of a, a career outside of Germany. You know, English and French have, have had their heyday, and English obviously has its heyday now. But German is, uh, has a number of things to recommend it. One is that it's, it is the anti-Jew language. <laughs> it is the language in which all, a lot of the work relating to uh, the, the question of, of Jewish power is written in. Mm-hmm. And it's the language in which you know, Hitler spoke. It's the language of much of the history, the great history that was produced in our civilization in like the 19th century by guys like Ranke or Treitschke uh, wrote in German. And these guys are almost totally forgotten outside of Germany. Now. I like their books, their books are very common in German, but they're almost forgotten, despite the fact that these were the guys who established the modern discipline of history. Right. So there is also a an incredible prestige in learning a foreign language. You can always one up a Swipple, oh, an upper yeah. middle class white person by saying, you know, I, uh, I speak whatever. They always have to defer to you on that because they haven't read it in the original. Womp womp. <laughs> and like, I think the best part about that is because even if they do have a second language, you could, if you could trouble them with a third, that's, that's the end. They don't even try after that. <laughs> yeah. But if, if we don't, if we don't, if there isn't a sort of counter movement to mm-hmm. the dominance of English, you're going to see a dying off of half, actually more than half, the most of our cultural tradition in the West. Because right. You're not go- the Italian stuff, the French stuff, the German stuff is only going to be remembered in those countries. And as those countries start to speak English more, those their own languages are going to be residual and they're not going to be really able to connect with the great literature of their own country and you're already seeing this in in especially in the nordic countries oh yeah and well and this kind of goes back to again part of what we were discussing before it happened in the hre when the adoption of 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 high german throughout the entirety of the of the empire you know the 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 kind of the removal of these smaller smaller tribal languages throughout yeah but that was that was good though because the smaller tribal languages didn't have literature well fair in that case yeah i do agree with that um but I mean, what, you could make an argument for like, well, uh, Martin Luther should have standardized on Middle German so that you could have then had the Nibelungenlied or Parseval still be the literary standard of German. Right. I can see that argument, but because like, well, in in the in the scope of empire, though, right? Like, as these smaller nations become nothing but peripheries, 
to the larger empire, right? Like the the big whatever mercantile empire that we're seeing now that uses English as the lingua franca, they will all be pushed out as the small tribes did. Like even even their like they'll just be forgotten. Their languages will be forgotten. Their their literature will be forgotten. Everything about them will be completely just wiped out. And that's not necessarily they. I mean, well, the, the point is that they're going to try to racially wipe them out as well, right? Like that's another big issue. Um, uh, but the 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 the. the it's almost hard though, because like while we do want to focus on German, obviously having a lot of this great basis of science and and anthropology and and uh, you know history and all this other stuff written in, in German, it almost uh, it's, it's almost sad to only pick one to preserve. You know, sure. Uh, you know, there's definitely an argument to be made for French, right, and for Latin or ancient Greek even. But I would, you know, I, I've thought about this problem a bit, and I originally thought Greek because. If you're going to go with the least derivative literature to have the smallest core curriculum that you can possibly have, mm-hmm. because you, you need to start from the smallest thing you can and then Building blocks. then figure out, OK, well, what else fits into this? What else can build on this that makes sense? But if you want to be ruthlessly minimalistic and pick just the littlest stuff that really you need, you're looking at ancient Greece. And if you, so you say Aristotle, Plato, uh, maybe the tragedians, Homer, certainly. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, let's learn ancient Greek and have that be the sort of elite language. You could do that. And you could even say you could use Greek as a means of international communication because there is a modern Greek that is used by millions of people as a international language, a language of science and technology. It has all of the apparatus to describe the modern world. Uh, And also it gives you that connection to the ancient culture. But I do like German uh, because there's a certain practical aspect to it as well that more people speak German. There are you can imagine having finding easily German professors to teach your top ten percent, your top twenty percent to speak German and and to actually interact directly with that European literature and culture right. that you can't in the English speaking world now because of how bad language study and language knowledge is. That's true. It's it's I, as you you always bring this point up too when we discuss languages. It's it's very direct too. It's it's not uh like as a, as a language like yes, yeah, so German isn't as degenerate as English. German hasn't taken on as many uh, loan words from foreign languages, so it's an integrated system. It the low language builds logically to the high language, and that was certainly true in 1900. Unfortunately, now if you read modern German books, they're filled with anglicisms and. Uh, Latin, French, Anglo words, and the it's become the, an international stru- language. The, the structure, form. the grammar, isn't as good as as the older stuff. The older stuff is much more; uh, it flows much better, and it's it's much more logical. But the point is that German still has the ability to. It was used recently as a means of international communication and of intellectual communication right. on a high level, using mostly or vast majority using its own word stock and not resorting to foreign languages now i think that uh, this this actually goes well into what we were discussing earlier about is the eu the the successor state then to this roman empire right because the romans would use uh, the, the, the elites would speak ancient greece or ancient greek um but the elites of the european union at, during the start of it were mostly well read and written in German. I think he uh, Calgary gave speeches in English, obviously too, and that became one of the major things. But a lot of the original literature was written in German. Which is funny because they are talk. They've been talking about. They're always talking about whether they should adopt a different language of the EU. Uh, French is usually the one that comes up. 
French or sometimes German. The funny thing is that and they're scared to use German. <laughs> they won't. They're scared to use German because of the Hitler Association, right? And because the French are the French, right? Won't uh, allow the French won't speak it. That's the a... French refuse. Yeah, the French will never <laughs> yes. speak Allemand. Uh, Allemand. Yeah, no, they won't. They won't do it. Um, and and you know, to their credit, sure. But at, at the same time, like that. That does go back again to the point of the whole HRE, Habsburgs, and all this other stuff. Like, what are they actually trying to accomplish here with the EU? Like, if they if they actually do want to make the EU an actual empire, or like an actual solidified empire of Europe, they are going to have to... You're right, they are going to have to select something other than English. Because English, even as Calgary noted... England and Eng- English, the whole apparatus of, of, the, of the concept of Anglicism is outside of mainland Europe. It has its own empire. It had its own ambitions, right? And so you need something never, more the European. The thing is they will never pick German. Right. And they will pick, they might pick French. They could they do might, Italian. They might settle on French. The thing about French and the reason I would not advocate for French as the sort of resi- the counterculture educated language is because French isn't the resistance language it, surprisingly <laughs> it, it, it isn't it's it's something that's established if you you can still french is still something you can learn in u.s schools mm-hmm. uh less so than than spanish it's certainly lost a lot of ground in international prestige right but french isn't there isn't that implicit naziness about speaking french the way there is with german <laughs> true yeah. i'm sure leon de grel spoke french but he also spoke german right and that's that's also another thing about this the, what would be the heart of empire in 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 um in in the eu based on this linguistic element right so when i when i was uh watching recently like all the the world economic forum uh uh seminars from from davos in switzerland most most things were addressed in in multiple languages originally right but they they used french quite a bit in their initial addresses they did english they did some french and they did some german and so obviously switzerland is this one weird anomaly right where it has basically all three of these major old languages so you have french german and italian all in one country um and so this is this is also a, a, something that surprises me to no end like i can, i can understand why brussels was chosen only because switzerland had its neutrality policy as being the heart of the eu and it's yeah. not technically in the eu uh it's part of the economic block sure but it's not it's not actually within the european union um so if it, switzerland would have been the natural choice in my opinion, for the heart of, of it because of this linguistic uh, trifecta, right? Yeah. Like it, it is perfectly geographically centered in Western Europe, effectively. And it has all three of the linguistic elements that excludes English. Um, so to me, that that that's also what I, but that's also why it is being used as that, as, su- as a supranational uh stronghold effectively that's why the world economic forum is held in switzerland it goes beyond the eu right like they're trying to create an empire that's again beyond the eu beyond the united states and all those other things and english is I, I i bet you any money that these guys like schwab has the exact same ideas you do about language where they're only using english because i know i know i'm Just sorry uh, <laughs> but and not to say that's necessarily they're a bad thing english because they have to but no it is I, I bet you any money that's the case because every chance that they get to address the audience in a different language they do it um even even like the the host of of uh i think it was the mayor of davos or whatever he addressed he did a, most of his spiel was in french um and obviously you know schwab speaks german m- 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 mostly and all this other stuff so like i would imagine they're only using english because the colonial other empires that they bring there do speak English but as, German as a German is language. the one is the one European language that doesn't really have a big colonial block of speakers. And that's because there are a lot of Nogs who speak German. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I mean now there are a lot of Turks, but Well, right. Yeah, but that's because they went to Germany right, to colonize they went to it. Germany. Yeah. But the the real question is in in terms of 
curriculum formation? What are the works of literature and philosophy that we want to have as the pan-European American mm. education uh, core for your elite, your national socialist elite, your mm. not current elite, but right. your, S, your new SS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> German makes the most sense because you're, you're picking the literature and the body of work that is brought in. If you just say, well, we could just translate, you know, we translate Goethe and Schiller into English and then we'll keep Goethe and Schiller in English. You lose it won't so, happen. Yeah. It won't happen because you're going to the English speakers are always going to have more interest in the great works of English literature that were written in English because they're better in English. Right. And they're not going to the translations of, of Goethe or whatever are just not going to. You lose all your poetic nuances, everything, anything that makes it robust, anything that makes it powerful and potent is lost basically in translation. The concept of loss in translation is, is more so, you know, a, a thing within this literary element here, because, again, it, as you said earlier, it flows, right? Old German flows. It flows very well. It's very concise. It's very logical. With the translation, unless you have somebody that's really, really good at understanding both languages on a fundamental level about how language works, you and this the, here's another big issue. Most people that do translations don't even have a fundamental grasp about how to like to eloquently use their own base language. So they they can't really translate it and and work it because like again they do direct translations as compared to how am I supposed to write this. Per particular idea in my language right like how do i translate this idea from german into english and get it to mean the exact same thing and there's there's just some there's simply structural problems uh you can't get the literal sense of the words and get the poetic structure when you're translating from one language to another right That's, there's just no way to do it and you can argue all day about this translator is better than that translator but i would say I mean, the more the bigger threat to culture is actually translating books. I'm almost against translating. Ooh, hot take. <laughs> I mean, that was the actually that was the attitude for centuries. Yeah. Don't translate out of Latin. Don't translate into English. I mean, the, all the old Anglo's who were learning the classics, it was learned in Latin or don't read it. Right. That's yeah. Well, most up, up until so maybe I'm just a reactionary. Well, not but, necessarily because up until like the early 1900s, you had to do most of your your doctoral you know writings in in Latin too. Uh, that was part of the deal. Like you had even in universities, you had. Well, to I mean, Latin. I, Latin, yeah, okay, up to like, it was fading through the 19th century, but yeah, Kant, for instance, wrote his doctoral thesis, his two doctoral theses in Latin. Yeah, so does Schopenhauer though in the mid 1800s. There's a few yeah, of them. It, did, it took a while to die out. Yeah, but again, we're talking about German again, where the German, you know, the Germans try to maintain this this kind of lineality to uh, to to history. But the other advantage of German is German is what English would be if English hadn't been corrupted by massive amounts of French and Latin. Right. And you can almost, you could almost see in the future remodeling English on English's core based on the German model. Just looking at the way that German forms its verbs and its, and its uh, higher abstract words, and then taking English bits and working it together to form calcs off the German words. I mean, mm. this is how, this is usually how high languages are formed. It's how, it's how the Russian literary language was formed off of um, old Russian and off of old church Slavonic. It was built up off on the they took Greek concepts or Latin concepts and just built it up from the Slavic core. They didn't just say, all right, well, let's just take like let's take 500 words from Greek and just start using them. They took a few, but they didn't yeah. take they didn't take that many. 
Right, true. And you can kind of pick them. It's obvious whenever somebody's speaking Russian or whatever and they use like a Latin word and you're like, what? <laughs> no, Russian... It, it's very rare, obviously. It's, but, it's funny, like Russians tend to speak, they tend to use, at least, I mean, granted I'm a foreigner talking to them, but like it, they are very good at speaking in very plain language mm. and they know not to use stupid, um, the grass is greener on the other side. What are those oh, called? Oh, um metaphors cliches oh they know, yeah they know not to use cliches all the time oh, okay they know what the cliches are and what the regular words are and they can sit they can speak to you in the very straightforward language mm. uh americans have a very difficult time with that right that is true I, that's one thing i run into on a constant basis so so yeah that's, uh, and, I, and i'm honestly like i i'd imagine like you know we fall prey to that as well in, in regular conversation it's just part of it's, it became part and parcel with how to speak english is, is is utilizing these types of things yeah so that's uh one of the main points of this podcast is a shilling for the german language <laughs> in english uh i appreciate the irony thank you <laughs> <laughs> well until next time bis zum Endsieg.